War of the Spark, Commander 2019, and Restricted List updates on episode 93 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 93 of So Many Insane Plays, our discussion of the August 26, 2019 Restricted List update and our Commander 2019 review with our War of the Spark report card. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Steve, let's talk briefly about tournaments. So I'm usually in the habit of giving updates on my local events, but the schedule has become really consistent in my area. We've got uh, three shops around here running tournaments, and two of them are just alternating uh, weekend days, which is fantastic. Nice. Yeah, the gaming warehouse in Grand Rapids, up in Grandville, actually, is running uh, proxy events on Sundays, the last Sunday of each month. I should say the fourth Sunday of each month. If there's five Sundays, it's still going to be on the fourth Sunday. And then at BC Comics in Battle Creek, they are running Vintage in on Saturdays. That is the second Saturday of each month, normally in Battle Creek. You can check their Facebook group. Uh, that's, it's no longer called BC Comics, I just realized. I'm so used to calling it that. It's <laughs> Perfect Storm Games now in, in uh, Battle yes. Creek, Michigan. So if you're in the area and want to play some proxy vintage, basically everywhere that's recurring around here is full proxy. How about in your neck of the woods, Steve? Uh, we've got a vintage event at Udo, Udo Games in Berkeley on September the 1st, which is a Sunday, this Sunday. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this gets posted in time to notify folks. Yep, but I'll do my best. That, good, good. And that's a proxy event also, you said? Proxy event. Um, it is $25 entry up to 15 proxies. Ex- Swiss rounds with cut to top eight and 100% prize payout and store credit. Excellent, excellent. I want to remind our listeners of one minor announcement that's leading up to champs. We, we're going to talk about Commander 2019 here in this episode, of course. But there is still one more set release, the fall expansion, which is coming out on October yes. 2nd. El- Eldrain. Eldrain, that's right. As well as one more Bannon Restricted List update. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to talk at a great length about that here today. But there's still one more before uh, the event happens. So uh, That's right. It should happen. The, it's I not think the end on- of the, the story. It should happen, I think, on about October 1st. Usually in the... Hold on a second. Uh, according to the to uh, Ian Duke, the next Bannon Restricted List announcement will be October 7th. Yeah. But um, I was looking online, and it looked like Eldraine... Maybe this has changed, but I thought the Eldraine release date was going to be October 1st or October 2nd. I have October 2nd in my notes, yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's changed, um, but... Or it could just be that's the next Monday following the release date in which they would do the update. So... Yeah. Um, Either way, beginning of October, there's going to be some shakeup in what's legal in the format, and then we will know new cards yeah, going into champs. And we'll do a, a preview show for champs, of course, after that information is known, after the the next uh, banner restricted list update, and we'll obviously know the whole set of Eldrain by then. Right, Steve, and that will be the final. That will actually be the final change of the format for the year because there will be no scheduled. There's no other sets coming in the format this year yep. that I'm aware of. Yep. Um, and so it'll be the final opportunity for them to change the banner restricted list and or introduce new cards. Yep, good stuff. All right, what other content updates might you have? Well, I'll be referencing it during the course of this podcast, but um, in the last couple of weeks, I published my annual 
suggested changes to the ban and restricted list article. <laughs> you may recall, Kevin, that last year, instead of writing you know, in an ad hoc way about the ban and restricted list, I decided it would be better practice if I just once a year shared my thoughts and opinions on what I thought should, should occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and I plan to do that around May, which is the time that the Swedish Magnus de Laval, who manages the Swedish eternal, uh, Swedish old school format, announces his changes, which follows NoobCon. But too much was happening in May, June, and July, so I needed some time to see how things washed out and settled before making my recommendations. And I'll talk about what those are and sort of the principles that I used. Um, but I would want to just direct people to reading it. I thought I did some interesting stuff. The only thing I'll mention here is that for old school formats, Kevin, I suggested that for old school 94, Format managers look very closely at Mishra's factory mm. as a potential target of restriction. Since my last article, a new, yet another old school 9394 format came into existence called Atlantic. Mm. And the Atlantic rules are great. I love them. Um, and coincidentally or not, they happen to be precisely what I recommended last year for old school 94. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very, you know, partial to the Atlantic rules, but. Right. Uh, I think Mishra's factory is something that needs to be taken a close look at. I did some data analysis and I found that it's about 25, basically an average is about 25 copies per top eight. Um, so in Swedish, it's close to 28 copies per top eight. In Eternal Central Rules, it's about 24, 23 <laughs> copies per top wow. eight. So it's, it's up basically up there with strip mine and the Eternal Central Rules as being just ubiquitous. The only decks that don't play it are basically like speed combo, combo decks, which there are very few of, like, you know, like Power Monolith, and, um, and there are a few other decks, like some Armageddon decks might not play a full load. Um, but anyway, that's one of the cards. I, I go into more detail in my article, so check it out. And I also made some changes to my recommendations for Old School 95, Old School 96, and now Old School 97. A few tweaks. All right. Excellent. Well, just so that our listeners understand, we've got three major headings for this show today. We're going to talk first about our War of the Spark report card. That'll go quickly because we've had to wait a little extra time between set reviews to do our report card for that set. We're going to review a few cards from Commander 2019, even though the set has very little to offer vintage. And then we'll get into the meat of the episode, which is our ban in the restricted list uh, update analysis. So let's get started with our War of the Spark report card. Sounds good. I'm really looking forward to this. All right, Steve. Well, we reviewed a ton of cards, a metric ton of cards <laughs> for War of the Spark, and it was really an interesting mixed bag. So there are in every set a number of cards that we talk about that we predict no play for, and there is no play for, and it's no different in War of the Spark. So for the likes of Jace, Wielder of Mysteries, Flux Channeler, Burning Prophet, uh, Return to Nature, Price of Betrayal, um, Ral Storm's Conduit, Tomic distinguished advocist deliver unto evil and yeah that's it for those all zeros across the board no surprises there there were a couple of zeros where we were surprised though it's going to be very interesting and this set has some really interesting revelations about what it's like to be in our shoes and predict set results so let's move to the first non-zero result and that is uh, dreadhorde arcanist steve you predicted 12 i predicted eight the actual was seven Seven top, top eight appearances eights, yep, for Dreadheart Arcanist. Do you, do you have uh, the data on what, what that was, where those were? 
Uh, no, not in front of me. The, most of them were challenges, but you know our friend Justin Franks uh, did very well at with a second place at SCG with Dreadhorde Arcanist. I think my summation of Dreadhorde Arcanist is not so much that my prediction of 8 was entirely prognostic. It was more along the lines that the format was so focused on other things during this time that a great card such as Dreadhorde Arcanist just didn't have time to stretch its leg. You predicted 12 over my 8, and I think you did so for good reason. I think Dreadhorde Arcanist is a better card than 7 top 8's Belize, and we're going to see potentially some more use of it in light of the restricted list update. But for now, my prediction was closer. Yeah, I, I really have a hard time believing it's just 7. I do believe you. <laughs> I think part of what explains that is that, that we're only looking at the, th- the three-month time period. So the yeah. most recent Vintage Challenge had two copies of it. That's right. Oh, um, that's right. Uh, so I should make a clarification that we are looking at results uh, in a kind of a... Uh, a protracted time period, but we know that this set has been out for a while now, and uh, so the results are changing as we speak. So let's talk about Teferi Time Raveler. So, well, Sorry, well, hold on a couple things. Hold on a couple things. So, so what what you're saying is that from the date of the set release, we're counting forward three months, ninety days, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, and so that's our time period for review. And so anything outside of that, you know, I, I could see a bunch of um, Jeskai decks that the top aided with it, and then of course the SCG Con. Yeah. I went back and listened to our set review today. We're recording, obviously, on one of the most momentous days in the history of Vintage, <laughs> uh, August 26, 2019, in terms of this major shakeup to the format. Um, and one of the things that you had said in the review, Kevin, and we were both bol- very bullish on a card. And we also, it's notable that this card just didn't see a lot of play in the first month or so. It really wasn't until Justin got second, I believe it was, SCG Con, mm-hmm. that it kind of took off. And one of the things that you had said in your in the discussion we had was that you think this will be a slow burn, and specifically you said that you didn't think that a lot of players would adopt it until they saw it in action in a top eight. Yeah. And so that was very well put, and that was very predictive. The thing in particular that I think is important about that is we had a whole discussion about how is this better or worse than Dire Fleet, Daredevil, yeah. Snapcaster Mage, Jace Fringe Prodigy. We discussed a range of kind of analogous cards, and I was very bullish on it. And I think we were both really prescient. But I think one of the things that um, that you were really right on was that people would be skeptical about it at first. And in fact, I had a I had a Twitter conversation shortly after it came out with Andreas Peterson, who of course is a phenomenal. I think it regard highly reg- cannot you know highly regard enough. <laughs> he was very skeptical. I said I think this card's going to be really good, and he basically said he shot that da- shot it down. He didn't think it would be <laughs> right. And then it took about three three weeks for it to pe- for it to pe- appear in a top eight. <laughs> So you were right on in terms of that prediction. I won't be surprised if we don't see a significant increase in Dreadhorde Arcanist in the the near future vintage metagame as we react to the new restriction. But we can save that conversation a bit for later. It, I do think the card was punished heavily by the the fundamental nature of the format for the last couple of months. L- London Mulligan, yeah, yeah and Xerox being marginalized, that, yep. and also the games just haven't lasted very long. You, you, you can't make use of a Dreadhorde Arcanist with any kind of reason, <laughs> reasonable uh, uh, amount of value unless you've attacked with it twice, right? Yeah, <laughs> it is a, I, I have so. to say, I'm, I, I, I'm just shocked that you won this one, but <laughs> um, I feel like I, I, I was in the spirit of things with it. Well, but, I, yeah, I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to gloat over this one. I don't think my prediction was especially uh, right on. I think there are other factors at play that that tamped this down. You were right to be a little more bullish on it. It just didn't come out that way. All right, next, let's talk about Teferi Time Raveler. Stevie predicted two. I predicted four. The actual was exactly four. Wow. Yeah. Nice. What what a called shot for me there. 
Yeah, the, I mean, the Teferi has, has seen its place in uh, mostly either PO decks or some kind of interesting uh, Jeskai or Jeskai-adjacent control deck. And yeah. I, I think the card, uh, similar to Dreadhorde Arcanist, is is probably destined for more play as we sort things out in Vintage. It's just really good at its role in PO. It's just that PO hasn't been available for the last couple of weeks and months. A, c- a couple of points. I mean, the... the- one of the things that we talked about that's so significant about this card is that it actually covers more ground than a an abeyance type effect mm-hmm. because it actually prevents your opponent from playing uh card spells in most of the phases of their turn right yep. so it's yep. it's it's broader than just kind of like a xanthid swarm type effect um the other thing that we talked about in the in the I was very bullish going into the the conversation and I drew back a little bit in our set review um but I was still positive on it was that there's a lot of competition at this three mana cost walker s- slot, right? Mm-hmm. Between Dak and Narset, Teferi is just, it's hard for it to really get, get space, deck space. Yeah. Um, and although, you know, preventing opponent from playing spells is different from pl- uh, preventing opponent from playing, drawing cards, they're both highly disruptive in ways that overlap in some ways. You know, the functions are different, but the effects are similar <laughs> in terms of their disruptiveness. Um, and I just think, obviously, the the big thing that Narset has going on is that we said it's basically universalizable across all blue, yeah. right? Because you don't have to have a white splash, yeah. and that really hampers Teferi. And I think Dak also being such a powerful draw in red also eats up space for Teferi. But um, I'm not at all surprised it saw play. Um, kudos to you for getting it dead on. <laughs> but we were both right that we predicted it would see play. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it goes down as a quote-unquote win for me, but you were only off by two. And it's, not, it's not a big deal. <laughs> So um, oh, well, you don't have to make me feel feel better because <laughs> I have a f- I have a feeling on the on the back end of this I'm going to be doing pretty well. Uh, so. Oh yeah, absolutely, you absolutely are. So um, I'll give you your wins. Is what I'm the saying. The next three, <laughs> the next three cards are where we really learned some lessons. I think in this set review, the first one is the <laughs> this is the easy one. Bolas's Citadel. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted one. The actual was ten. Ten nice. Bolas's Citadel, which. I mean, I know I knew it was more than the one I predicted. I had seen the results here and there. I didn't realize it was ten. That's super impressive to me. It was a combination of mostly of PO and uh, just storm work, right? Some decks that were uh, dark petition storm or, or, or adjacent to that yeah. list. Yeah. Well, there was a there was a list that I'm, I'm actually shocked this was more than Dreadhorde Arcanist, but the most of these lists I think were probably in the first month mm-hmm. they after were. the release because there was a obviously Bolas Citadel is squeezed out by everything else that's come since. It's not that great when you're facing a lot of force of vigor, um, but um, there was, I think, at least one vintage challenge that was won by a DPS deck with Bolas of Citadel, and I played with it. It was it's quite good, quite good as a card. I think if you hadn't have told me the precise number and looked up the data, I would have probably guessed six to seven top eights. Yeah. And, um, and- so it's a little higher than I thought based upon just perception of results yeah uh, that's completely that's basically what i would have felt like as well all right so let's talk about the two biggest hitters no surprise for anyone understanding how war the, the spark impacted vintage next is karn the great creator stevie predicted 12 i predicted eight the actual was 35 yeah 30 not at all surprised yeah this and again to be clear this is decks with them not copies <laughs> that's um, right per top that's eight. absolutely right and you, you i mean everyone knows that karn was very dominant in workshops, but it was also be- showing up in different decks. There was a couple of storm decks with Karn, right? We saw it again in the, the the Asia Vintage Championship results that just happened, which aren't in these results, of course. And there were a couple of PO decks with Karn, right? Some various other brews. It was probably, I didn't do the numbers, 75-80% shops decks that we know of. 
And it was then subsequently bolstered by the printing of Mystic Forge, as we know. Yeah. So Karn we, was ostensibly dominant and ostensibly everywhere. <laughs> we spent a lot of time talking about Karn in our set review. And in, in the podcast, in our discussion, in the course of our discussion, we anticipated how it would be used. We both talked, we talked about how it'd be used as a combo card to find mm-hmm. Mycosynth Lattice and alluded to Time Vault, you know, and we talked about Ensnaring Bridge and we talked about how it could find tactical answers. Um, but the one major point of contention between you and me, Kevin, was that I posited that I thought it would be really good in the quote workshop mirror, which I defined as both workshop aggro and then other kind of taxing decks. Mm-hmm. And you really pushed back on that. And I think I was proven correct on that, that score. And it's, yeah, it's because I envisioned that mirror, mirror still being primarily an aggro matchup, right? I envisioned it still primarily being a, an arcbound ravager, walking ballista, Phyrexian revoker kind of situation. And that is where I was wrong. Well, what's interesting is that for most of the existence, so the Karn was in existence for about three, <laughs> as an unrestricted card for about, what, three and a half months, right? Something yeah. like that. For the first half of that, it was actually the workshop decks were split between the Karn and the workshop aggro decks, mm-hmm. and the and then the Karn decks just took over, and that acceleration happened faster when Mystic uh, Forge was printed, um, and then the aggro decks just completely disappeared. Um, but I think actually what was more important and missing in your analysis was that you thought that the basically the shop aggro deck would have like basically two turns to empty its hand, not fully anticipating. I don't think either one of us did that Grim Monolith would become this uh, linchpin to the archetype and that so i mean one of the reasons and we'll talk about this more when we get to karn in the restricted list discussion is that one of the reasons i was less concerned about it is because it's not a consistent turn one play in a workshop deck because you can't use a workshop to cast it Mm -hmm. um even and of course it depends on what we mean by consistent (laughs) um the london mulligan makes it a lot more consistent than it would be without the london mulligan Um, And I don't remember whether when we recorded our set review, whether London Mulligan was formally (laughs) legal, you know, was formally announced as to be the effective Mulligan uh, de facto. When we were reviewing War of the Spark, it was definitely not official. Not not official. Yeah. But I think the point is that um, the point I'm making is that the percentage of the time that the workshop pilot can cast Karn when they have Karn in their opening hand is much higher. (laughs) <laughs> then yeah. I think either you or I predicted. I don't know what that percentage of the time is, and obviously consistent is probably higher than fifty percent. How much higher? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but substantially higher. You know, I don't think it was ninety percent of the time, but it could be could be as much as like seventy percent of the time. I don't know if you have yeah. a take on that. But I think what's clear is that the deck was designed. I mean, especially the more aggressive version with serum powder on top of the London Mulligan were designed to get card down as quickly as possible. Yeah, there's no denying that. And I agree completely. You and I did not view the kind of extreme bent toward being a combo deck that we would experience. Now, obviously, the creation and presence of Mystic Forge had a lot to do with that. So yes. that we can be excused for a little bit of, of misunderstanding but, in this regard. But we but, did talk about it as a combo card. I mean, at the end of our oh, review, you, you and well, I both talked sim- about it multiple yeah, times. Yeah, but the simple truth was, is when there was no Mystic Forge to go with it, the impetus to to resolve a four mana card on the first turn and subsequently win the game was <laughs> reduced by about fifty percent when we were analyzing this card, Fair right? Yeah. So that inherently reduces our expectation of the value of Grim Monolith and and these associated value of things like Voltaic Key, right? It's a yes. cascade of effect. Yes. Um, so we're you know we're a little bit at the mercy of new printings here too. But the True. simple truth is is that 
I really legitimately thought this was going to be just in addition to the standard fare of I'm tapping my uh, Steel Overseer to buff my team kind of workshop play. And that was just completely wrong after just a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think what I expected was I expected to show up in multiple archetypes. I expected to be, I expected to anchor a new workshop control archetype. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. But I also expected it to show up as a few of in the workshop aggro decks and in other decks besides. And so I think the kinds of decks I saw emerge, like do well at SVG Con, that's, you know, before leading up to that, that's the kind of Karn decks I expected to see. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I expect them, expect them to be, I mean, I think what I really, wasn't sure of is whether it would be more of like a a tesseret where you're just literally the main thing you're doing is just time balding or whether it'd be more like a a kind of a swiss army utility card you know what i mean yeah and i sure. think it i think it, i thought it was going to be a split of both it ended up being much more just a tesseret than a kind of toolbox card yeah you know what i mean absolutely so. i do and and history has demonstrated for example just to to follow that tesseret comparison very few tesseret decks ended up being toolboxy. Right. Very few of them had more than, say, one role-playing artifact in them. Yeah. <laughs> for uh, like for maybe emergencies. maybe a needle or something, yeah. Right. So your, your point is, your, your comparison is well made there. Well, we don't need to belabor the point further because we're going to belabor the point further yes. <laughs> later on. <laughs> yes. So the next big learning but, for oh, us but from I, this But set, I still will take that as a win. Sorry. Uh, yeah. you, you, I mean, you can't. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing about that, and, and I don't need to make a, a major case out of this, but... When the variance to our prediction is greater than the prediction itself, <laughs> I tend to mark it down as not a win for either of us. Like, you <laughs> predicted 12, the variance was 23, you weren't even halfway there. I mean, I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to ride the technicalities to a win here. I'll give you your due on the other ones, but I'm going to yeah. take this one. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, you're about to get another one. Oh, oh, by the way, and I was laying off by four there, you know, so it's not that big of a difference. Oh, um, from, from my prediction, you mean? Right, yeah. yeah. So the next one is Narset Parter Avails. You predicted 22. I predicted 20. You know, so you got the over on this one. The actual was 44. Wow. And so Incredible. another very similar situation as with Karn. But, but by the, the way, my prediction well, the, is equal to the variance here. So I will right. take that as a win under either standard. <laughs> <laughs> you said that the, the, the variance had to be greater than my prediction. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the narrative here is a little different than Karn. And you've already said it in, in our lead up here. And that is how universal Narset is to basically every blue strategy. And absolutely, she showed up, you know, in the last couple of weeks, it's been bug, all bug all the time. But she has showed up in in all the Xerox variants, all the outcome variants, all the other combo variants, just almost anything that's going to cast Ancestral Recall has been trying to cast Narset while she's been legal. 44 is an immense number. That's, it really is. That's a lo- very, very large number. That's of rarefied that error. Yeah. It is. That's, that's so immense, especially for a three-mana card. So yeah, you and I predicted. I mean, I predicted eight Carns and twenty Narsets. So I was definitely heavier on Narset. You predicted twelve Carns and twenty-two Narsets. Like so I was we almost both, double. Yeah, yeah, almost double, and I, I more than doubled. So the fact that we knew Narset was going to be more played is not too much of a shock. I mean, blue is just a, an enormous part of the metagame and has been for for ages. But the just the amount of this really has to um, draw into sharp relief our predictions in the future. One of the things I'm going to do personally is analyze the total t- number of top eights here and how many of them were represented by individual portions of cards. But I'd like to point out, Steve, that one of the things we're observing here, not only is 35 cards and 44 Narsets, those are high numbers. The fact that they're both together in the same set yes. and basically cannot be played together with, yes. within reason. There's a couple well, of exceptions. 
the fact that we had two incredibly high numbers that don't overlap at all is noteworthy. And it speaks to the, the, the consolidation of the format around these two cards for the last three months. Well, when this set came out, the way in which I viewed it was this was a new world wake. <laughs> I, I yeah. responded to Andreas Peterson on Twitter saying that, I think right after our set review, this is a new world wake. The world yep. wake was primarily defined by two cards, Lodestone Golem and uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor, kind of anchoring the format, mm. right? And I really felt that Karn and Narset were going to do that again, but I didn't think it would be to that extent. <laughs> um, but it, it, it has proven out to that extent. Now, both of my predictions were double digits here, oh, yeah. which I very rarely do. Per- both I, of us know. predicting 20 of a card is, is almost unprecedented. I mean, right. We've that's very, a very short list. <laughs> double digits. Yeah. Um, but I think that's basically what happened is the set was defined. You know, I, I thought that Dreadhorde Arcanist would be you know, the third leg of the stool. Yeah. And it's basically been a two-legged stool. <laughs> yeah. And one of the lessons from World Wake is that, you know, Jace the Mind Sculptor was, in the first year, a very hot topic for possible restriction. Lodestone Golem was a perennial topic of restriction until it eventually happened. So, um, not surprised that one of those has actually been restricted. Yeah. Well, we do need to move on. We'll talk more about the restriction concept, obviously, and more. Next up, Sahili Subprime Artificer. Stevie predicted one, I predicted two. The actual was zero. No Sahilis made top eight. There's too too much competition to the three mana planeswalker slot. Yep, couldn't Just agree way more. Way too much. Couldn't agree more. Next, by the way, I do really appreciate you. I, I appreciate the the emphasis you're giving to like learning here. To to how do we mm. how can we do a better job? Right. I mean, I, I think we did a decent job in terms of anyone listening to to our predictions for Karn and Narset would take would go away thinking these are going to be some definitely playable cards, <laughs> and here are some archetypes it's going to go into. But if you wanted to, you know, win money on precise predictions we were fairly far off <laughs> yeah on, on the um, scale at least of those two yeah the scale but yeah. we were both i mean again both of mine were double digits and they were both double digits so next up is blast zone steve you predicted five i predicted three the actual was an impressive nine wow and that clearly speaks to the um the systemic effects of how important karn was and how important the karn deck was to the metagame yeah. and by it association how important it was for that Karn deck to be able to address things like Collector Oof and Null Rod yeah. and etc. So Blast Zone was I think amplified in importance due to all the other systemic factors. Right. Your prediction was only off by what, four, but three. Four, yeah. yeah. But the, the 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 fact that it was so far off on such an interesting simple card at this point, uh, it speaks to the broader issues. Another good playable from that set. Absolutely. It's going to go down, in, I think, in history as a very good staple for Vintage, so long as there's a, a deck that needs to fight a collector roof. So next up is Dovin's Veto. We both predicted zero. The actual was one. <laughs> there was one <laughs> top eight in a sideboard for a Dovin's Veto. The, oh, we're, we don't need to talk about that in much detail. Let's talk about Dovin Hand of Control, another Dovin card. You predicted one. I predicted two. The actual was zero. And Sahili and Dovin, Hand of Control, both suffered, I think, from similar fates. There's a lot of competition at three. And also, the, the format uh, just could not allow for a sphere-like card that was so much slower to come down. Next up is a really interesting one, for many, many reasons. This is Ashiok Dream Render. You predicted five, I predicted zero, which is an interesting variance for you and I. The actual was five! <laughs> <laughs> i i i mean when we the first result happened i think you shared with me on twitter and i was like yeah okay you're gonna win this one 
But for you to have called that many, I think is <laughs> this is really humorous and a, and a credit to you on this one. This is my favorite win of yours of this whole set here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we it's nice to get a hole in one, right? I yeah. mean, you got one, and I got, I got one here. Yeah, so. I got one earlier. I think one of the things that that really made this card interesting. Two things made interesting and may, may have helped me. Number one is it's an alternate route to to winning. Right, it creates a strategic niche, much like Karn Cyan Aversa did for PO last year, where it just PO just needed another way to win, and Ashok Dream Render just provides that to a host of decks, from Oath to Bug to whatever. Right. The other thing it does really nicely is it's a Planeswalker that can help win the game against Dredge in Game One, and there's no face value cost that you can <laughs> price you can put on that. Right. That <laughs> that the value of that can't be yeah. um, underestimated, and um, and just the general utility effect, I think it's a nice it's a nice kind of singleton planeswalker you can wedge into an otherwise straightforward yeah. strategy. Well, I have to admit, I still I, I'm not, skeptical is not the right word. What I'm about to say sounds like skepticism. What I feel like is that the value over replacement for Ashiok seems off for how aggressive the metagame has been of late. And by that I mean, yes, everything you've said is true. I feel like it doesn't give you enough percentage points across the board to justify its slot is how I feel. But obviously I'm wrong to some measurable degree here, so it's something I'd like to examine a little further. Have you played with Ashiok? I have not. Okay. But I've faced Just it several times. Yeah. Okay. Well, so uh, kudos to you for that hole-in-one, as you put it. A little bit more cleanup duty here. God Pharaoh's statue. You predicted one, I predicted zero. The actual was zero. And Ugin the Ineffable. You and I both predicted zero. The actual was two. There were two top eights for Ugin. One with some main deck copies and a deck that already had a zillion planeswalkers. I think it had seven Karns and two Ugins, the deck I saw. And then one with some Ugin in the sideboard for a similar kind of Karn heavy list. So didn't really catch on. I think the, the reason is clear, right? Ugin is just too slow in a world where your opponent is trying to Karn faster than you are. But, but the simple truth is there's some, some strength there. There's some utility that, that who knows, we could see it through a different lens, maybe a workshop control lens in the long game. Or the long run. So overall, actual appearances for top eights, and just counting cards that appeared in top eights, is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine cards made vintage top eights out of War of the Spark. It's incredible. What a dense that's, set for vintage yeah, playables. That's really interesting. And several of them, you know, format staples to the point of one of them to the point of <laughs> already, restriction. Already, already restriction, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but Narset, who knows what Narset's fate is, right? She yeah, could Narset has, become, has more numbers here than Karn. Yeah, she could become a different kind of dominant now, and we won't be the first people to to address that point. So, War the Spark, an incredible set, uh, perhaps a little bit divisive, perhaps a little bit too powerful in some senses, and well, will go down in history as one of the most impactful sets on the format. In our kind of summation, closing argument of the set, I, I kind of provided a holistic perspective where I said I was particularly concerned about these asymmetrical or these static ability planeswalkers because the static ability planeswalker essentially gives the planeswalker another ability on top of you know the utility abilities they already have and that and one I, that you can uh, one that gets, lets you use basically two abilities to turn you play it effectively yeah the kind of, of scissor, the things scissors we about. Yeah. your opponents or double punch your opponent. And yep. the you know it's like grafting enchantments onto planeswalkers. They're all planeswalkers are already playable. Grafting enchantments <laughs> onto planeswalkers. I I just questioned the wisdom of that as a design from a design perspective, mm-hmm. um, and wondered how that would play out. And I think we already have a pretty significant but somewhat provisional answer to how that's played out. Not not well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. And it's which it, it deserves mentioning in our 
in advance of our review of the restricted list update that although Narset was not restricted during this announcement, she definitely strongly influenced one of the restrictions. And we're going to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. So her, her, her impact is felt on the announcement today. But enough about War of the Spark. Very fun set to review and analyze after the fact. We have to move on, though, and talk about Commander 2019. So, Steve, the commander set for this year has new cards, as usual. In this case, 59 new cards and and then a ton of reprints. And there aren't a lot of cards that are standouts or especially noteworthy for Vintage in this set this year. To the point where all we've done is scour some online discussions and, and early results from leagues and stuff to, to forge a short list of cards to review. And, and not even all of these are we reviewing for playability, but some just for discussion, as usual. So let's start with one that actually has some preliminary results, although not in a top eight fashion, and that is Savine's Reclamation. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I think Savine is right, but I could be wrong. The Reclamation says, to white, sorcery, return target permanent card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. If the spell was cast from a graveyard, you may copy this spell, and you may choose a new target for the copy. Flashback is 4W. So three mana on the way in, five mana on the way out, and you get two. And the returning clauses you might recognize as the same as Sun Titans, a permanent three or less to the battle. Now, initial work with this card has been primarily as uh, just a value card. It works very well with the three mana cost Planeswalkers that you already alluded to that permeate the format. And it works very well with looting, which one of those command, uh, which one of those Planeswalkers, Dak Faden, is especially good at. So there's some synergies there, and I know that some of our favorite vintage streamers, Justin Gennari and, and Matt Murray, have already been toying with the, the, the card in, in various builds. I'm skeptical that it's a long-term card for vintage, really. It's, it's, uh, it remains to be seen whether or not truly regrowing your Narset, for example, <laughs> is, is really a path to victory. And I'm super skeptical, skeptical about that insofar as Narset remains a four of in the format. Yes. <laughs> but there's no denying that you can get value through looting, and we've been doing it for a while in Vintage. So uh, what do you think? Well, it's, it's, there's two different directions I want to come at this from. One is the focus on the difference between just the regrowth effect and the actual putting it into play, because that's a significant difference. But the other is I just want to reflect on kind of immensity of the number of regrowth effects that now are in the format. I mean, from Nostalgic Dreams to you know Recall to Regrowth to Snapcaster Mage to Dread Horror Arcanist, it's hard to even think of all the number because there's so many, you know. Um but very few of those do this effect, which, you know, does it it essentially cheats a zone, right? It's a zone shift directly into play. Yep. And that typically applies only to creatures. There are things like Goblin Welder, Trash to Treasure that can do it um for artifacts. But to for any permanent is really interesting. Um and I don't think there's anything quite like it at this mana cost. Which means that I mean, you've made the point nicely about Sun Titan, but I think we have to give credit to that. I think we have to give some credit to the fact that there's nothing quite like this, right? That, that you're grafting the kind of ability to put something into play and return it at three mana. That's a pretty good bargain, I think. I think I agree with you. It's a very good bargain at three mana. And it, it's, there's a ceiling on it, right? Because of the, the, the 
converted mana cost of the target is limited to three. But the simple truth of it is in vintage, if you're not going to give us the ability to regrow Gristlebrand, then three is about the largest number we were going to want anyway. Right. Right. Out right. of a deck that's tapping things for colored mana. So I think it's, it's, it's actually kind of funny how three is such a number that doesn't really disrupt much in the vintage context. Yeah, there are a couple exceptions. I'd love to be able to get Jace the Mind Sculptor or Leyline of the Void back into play. Good point. But by and large, this is going <laughs> to get back. Chase Almost the Mind Sculptor is no longer going to be a vintage playable, probably. I mean, we've hit, reached such a critical mass of three-mana walkers, even if Narset's restricted. We're just going to see more Teferi, more Dak, you know, that kind of thing, Ashiok. Well, let's, let's save that for the restricted list analysis. Right. But, uh, but the, the so point the I'm making is, is that I, I think there is... A, the point I was making, though, is that I don't think it's a, it's a big loss that you cannot going to be able to recur. I'm, Chase yeah, the Mind Sculptor. I think yeah. there's plenty of walkers that you can recur... This will also hit lands, or you could hit a strip mine in a pinch, um, a creature in a pinch. Yeah. This can basically oh, yeah. get any permanent. That's the fact you know, that this hit lands is, not, is is you know is not to be undersold. You can get back a wasteland the first time, and you flash it back. You can get back two wastelands. Yeah, if you've got them. You, like, yeah, the the so the, the utility of this is definitely one of its strongest suits because you can get back the planeswalker that you either looted away or died through natural causes and you get to use it right away you know planeswalkers have effective haste yeah same goes for lands you can fix your mana you can disrupt your opponent with your lands you can get back your creatures if they manage to actually remove your monastery mentor somehow you get it back that's that's doubling up on a restricted card and let's not forget that you can indirectly get back ancestral recall with this how you might ask well you just return (laughs) your snapcaster mage and then you cast your ancestral granted that's a four mana play but that's there's nothing wrong with that right the fact that this card facilitates ramping you, like it'll get your Lotus back if you think that's the right thing to do for a big turn next turn or whatever. The, the flexibility here is something to be celebrated. It's fascinating. You know, I, I agree with you entirely. I think one of the things that uh, is also really interesting about this card is that it, it kind of slides in really well to an Oath deck. Because an Oath oh, yeah. deck, you, an Oath deck, you know, doesn't necessarily put all its eggs in the Oathing basket. And it typically has a lot of Planeswalkers as alternative routes to victory. This card... Mm-hmm meshes really well with that strategy because you can oath it into the bin, flash it back at two of your planeswalkers, and even if your opponent has dealt with the creature, you're just going to take over from those two planeswalkers. I mean, does wow, it allow you to get back the uh, Brian Kelly's black-green planeswalker? What's that thing called? <laughs> no, it does not. Oh, talk- I feel yeah, bad for Brian. His favorite planeswalkers all cost four, yeah. Um, <laughs> Garrick Relentless or Arlen Cord. No, you can't back- get back Arlen, any of them. yeah. Isn't yeah. there another one, like but- a one that starts with a V? He likes. Well, there's Vraska of Golgari yes. Queen. Yeah, yeah, I think he likes that one too. Yeah, is that so, one in, in range? No, they all cost oh, four. Garrick, God, Vraska, what a and dagger Arlen for Brian. <laughs> I know that's a good point. He won't be happy about that aspect. But I love the point you're making with respect to Oath because not only does this play super well with the the, the A plan of Oathing, as you said, it also plays super well with the B plan. This is a super grindy card. Yeah. that your opponent can't pyroblast. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's, you can, it you can like play it from your storm hand. Or force of will. You can just cast it, get yeah, value just cast out of it. it from your hand. Yeah. Like, play it from your graveyard, much like you would cast, or, you know, it's kind and, of like a, it's like a Yogmoth's will from the graveyard. They get you, <laughs> it, it is. It's like, either has flashback because you get two planeswalkers. How does an opponent yeah. come back from that? I mean, you get a, that's let's say a Narset and a, a deck God, well, that's brutal. Yeah. And then you immediately, like, <laughs> use it on mini them. him them. Yeah. yeah. I agree completely. You just oathed up. You're a creature, and maybe it's Crystal Brand, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just Inferno Titan, knowing Brian, right? But um, then you, yeah, then you just pay calmly, pay five mana, and do this, and put Dak and Narset into play. That's a that's a backbreaking turn. Yeah, 
I, you make a fair point. I would not be surprised if it turns out that um, this became a staple in Oath to this to the same way that's like ancient grudge has yes right? it's just you're, you're just expecting it because it's so synergistic and so right for the format i would not be surprised about that at all and you don't even need like a particular color combination it just puts it right into play get a lot of value yeah. there yeah nice well and so that obviously belies the question is how relevant is oath now or very in the post restriction very yeah. little it's never been worse maybe yeah maybe but i agree completely but caveat that and you can think back to our scg con results review show for a very recent example of this oath tends to be overrepresented in large north american paper events agreed and as such i wouldn't expect i wouldn't be surprised to see this card played at champs this year which is in, in our some review of those period because we're going september october and november yeah now whether that makes take top eight is anyone's guess there's a lot of change between now and then but i wouldn't be surprised to see if multiple oath decks that were played at champs had one of these in how serious is the work that you've seen put in this card? Uh, it seems <laughs> that's a really interesting way to phrase it. It seemed like it was just kind of fun from from Justin and Matt's perspectives early on. Uh, Justin's list was uh, the one that I saw was a kooky like m- four or more color snow based list with Arkham's Astrolabe. <laughs> so he was testing a couple of things at once there. The simple truth is I don't know how to answer that because I didn't watch the streams in which they they did this work. Justin played it in a challenge actually. I think it was. The last week's challenge. I think he went four two with it. So yeah, I don't think this card is to, anything to it's sneeze hard to at. Speak to that, yeah, yeah. I mean, like just the the sheer flexibility to be able to get you know a monastery mentor and a Tormod script, or yeah. an oath of druids and a planeswalker, or yeah. a strip mine and a soul ring. You know, it's just incredibly versatile. Or a, a time vault and a voltaic key. <laughs> <laughs> it's also worth noting that this plays the role of recoup in a gifts package. Oh, good point. Yeah. They can't keep you off of Key Vault. Granted, it's a lot of mana, but they can't keep yeah. you off of Key Vault if you put this in a gifts pile. Well, so I know that this is a tough time to predict results because the format just changed like 12 hours ago. <laughs> so any prediction we make right now is going to be suspect at best. But I think we've outlined some key use cases. It's a value card in a Xeroxy type shell. That or just is a five-color control shell, multicolor control deck. Yep, true. Good point. It doesn't have to be Xerox. And it plays very well with popular mechanics like looting like Dak Faden. Granted, Dak is at kind of an all-time low for the last several years at the moment, but we know change is coming. Dak might get better if the workshop decks tend back towards aggro, which is one possible future. So it's really difficult to say. I think this is a non-zero vintage top eight card. That's how I feel about Interesting. it. But I, well, think, but I think it's a really low number. If it's going to be played in Jeskai, I could not bring myself to put more than one of these into a Jeskai list. And same for Oath. And I have no reason to believe Oath is going to have a major resurgence right now. The format is still heavily Narset dependent and has a lot of issues. But uh, yeah, I would say I'm I'm interested in going one or more on this. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how games play out. And it's mm-hmm. hard to know what this landscape is going to look like precisely. But there is a lot of removal. And you, you know, you could and imagine one more. of these games where your opponent is, you're, you're jockeying with your opponent to destroy their planeswalkers, right? You get like Bolt. Assassin's Trophy, Abrupt Decay, Pyroblast, all these back and forth between these two things, and you play this card and it becomes immediately backbreaking. The problem is you don't really want more than like one or two of these cards in your deck, yep. right? So it's a it's a it's a recursion card, but it's not like a Snapcaster Mage or a Dreadhor Arcanist or a you know a Jacerin's Prodigy where you could run four. So yeah, so it's hard to know. I think it's situationally incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, if I had 
if you had a DAC fade oh, and play on turn two, yeah. you would probably bin this rather than keep it in your hand. You know, even though it's so synergistic. It has, um, yeah. I don't know. You I don't know how to answer that because it has everything yeah. to do with what else I'm binning, right? If I'm binning on, on Narset on my second turn, then maybe I keep this and cast it this way. Um, there, and there are reasons for that. You might say, why not just keep the Narset? Well, the answer is Pyroblast. Can't be Pyroblast. You could put a Narset into play. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, a better example? Teferi. You could put Teferi into play and then it won't be pyroblast- Pyroblastable on your turn either. Right. They're immediately shut off. Yeah. Jesus. That's that's an interesting case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of tricky interactions Blue, white, uh, from a timing standpoint and a color standpoint there. So, uh, yeah. I, and and the, the more you were talking about what it'd be like uh, vis-a-vis removal, it suddenly made me realize that against the modern bug decks, and now I know there's issues with saying bug is going to continue in its current form, but the they don't have Swords to Plowshares, right? For for quite a while in Vintage, when Mentor was so dominant, Swords to Plowshares was just an assumption. That's not the, the reality of the case at the moment. We could have a resurgence of that, and it might have something to do with playing white for this card, but the the simple truth is, right now, your stuff's not getting plowed that much, and that makes this card way better. But they do have they do have Deathrite Shaman. They do have Deathrite Shaman, but you can't Deathrite Shaman in Narset. Yeah, I agree. And Deathrite Shaman is a tactic that you can play again. But it does limit what you can... Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah. In, in that kind of scenario, you're, you're just going for the Planeswalker War. Yeah. But you can't, like, against a Deathrite Shaman, you know, yeah. put a Strip Mine into play. Put a, uh, you know, a Mentor into play. It's just not going to happen. So. But I, I want to point out another thing, too. And you said this is backbreaking. And the first thing I thought of was, wait a second. If you just play this on curve for something useful, and then because you're like a Deathrite Shaman deck and you have extra mana, and you could actually just flash this back on the next turn, that's a huge swing. Yeah. That's a potentially it's a huge a snowball, swing. Snowball yeah. effect. Now, granted, you can't really you can't really ramp very effectively with this card. Yeah, you could get back another land. Yeah, you can get back a Sol Ring or a Lotus. That's not excellent ramp. But the simple truth is, is that you could be a a Deathrite deck that can't, or like a, a Deathrite Ren and Six kind of deck that can expect to get to five mana. At yeah. which point, then flashing this back becomes a real a real threat that's hard to answer with modern counter magic suites. So- so for me to say that this is going to have zero appearances in the next three months is equivalent to saying this is not going to have one top eight appearance <laughs> in a vintage challenge in the next, you know, what it, would it be, uh, 12 challenges, that it's not right. going to have appearance in the vintage championship or any other major vintage tournament top eight reported. I'm on the and that fence. that would include champs? Yeah, I'm on the fence. I mean, this could, basically the range for this is like zero to five. I don't I think this agree. is going to be, this is going to be, um, I, I think that, the effect of the restrictions is going to open up enough design space that people are going to go back to other cards, like more Teferi before we get more of this. But the weird thing about it is those things could be coupled. So if like Narset is restricted in a month or the beginning of October, more precisely October 7th, then (laughs) we could see like this and Teferi working together. Uh, So there's just the, like the range of possibility, the kind of quantum waveform, if you will, is just enormously (laughs) large, right? It's like hard to predict which of those future realities will instantiate. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm just going to play the pessimist here. I'll play zero. Okay. Well, I think you're right about the the waveform for this card, and I won't be surprised if it's at either end of that spectrum. But I would, I would support that by saying, if this card's actually real, and Jeskai, for example, has a resurgence due to systemic factors, then I think your number's too low on the, at the top end. I think your ceiling's too low. If if Jeskai is real and it's capable of putting up one to two per top eight, and this card's part of that, you know, like the ceiling, I think is is 12, 10 to fifteen. Yeah, but that's and, not my prediction. And I, yeah, I think the issue is we're, like, what is Jeskai going to look like? It's going to look like 
like three pyromancers, like three dreadhorde arcanists, one Azor, you know, Lavinia, <laughs> yeah. and then like a smattering of planeswalkers. Or you know, it's hard to know what's going to look. Is it going to be more spell heavy? I just we just don't know. Yeah, right. I completely agree. There's too much. There's too many playable, good playable Jeskai cards, which I mean, I is why I'm not predicting the ceiling. I mean, it's really good in blue white control and potentially uh, Jeskai. I think probably less good in Jeskai than like just more traditional larger mana based blue white control deck. It's yeah. just hard to know. It's just hard to know. Yeah. It's also worth noting that this plays better with certain kinds of planeswalkers that are capable of removing themselves. You know? Yeah, I do. Like, this is actually really good with Dak Faden against Shops. Of course. Where it's part of their primary goal to remove that Dak, but after it's been activated to steal one thing, it, it it's not, you know, the it dying is not nearly as impactful. Well, getting it back immediately and stealing another thing is huge. Um, anyway. All right. So you're predicting zero. I'm predicting one. Let's move on. That's going to be the, the, the largest conversation of this review, by the way, for the benefit <laughs> of our listeners here. Let's move on and talk about one Elsha the Infinite. She is two blue, red, white. Legendary creature, Jin Monk. She's 3-3. Prowess, you may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may cast the top card of your library if it is a non-creature, non-land card. And you may cast it as though it had flat. God, how many times do we have to get this, this, <laughs> this wording, this I know. particular static abilities? So, so like, once again... So funny. We just had to restrict one of these. <laughs> right. So once again... Uh, we can look at the top card of your library, and then yep. here you can play the cop just like Mystic Mystic Forge. Uh, but the condition here is instead of if it's an artifact, it's, it's if it's a non-creature, non-land card, mm-hmm. which means that we're talking about what? Sorceries, enchantments, artifacts, planeswalkers, so it's broader, and you may cast it as if it has flash. Jesus. Yeah. I know, right? This So unlike many of the, the, the rash of them we've had lately... This one actually synergizes a lot with counter magic because. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, this is still, you could combo with this card. Don't get me wrong. Easily. Yeah. But the simple truth is, is you could put this in more controlling shell and just play it and say go. And your opponent then is stuck in the, the conundrum of, well, did they hit a land and can't keep casting or did they hit force of will? Right. <laughs> and yes. because you get to play everything as though it has flash, it even makes stupid stuff like Moxin still fine. Yes. You could conceivably if, just pass the turn with a mox on top of your deck and see what happens for, right. for various strategic like if and tactical If you've topped reasons. and you know that there's a mox on top, but like a mana drain underneath it, yeah. you can play the mox at instant speed and then play the mana drain at instant speed. <laughs> yeah. Now, Walking there might be reasons why that's not the right play. Yeah. The, no, well, your opponent can't you, see. Right. Because you don't want your opponent to see the, the mana drain. Well, they don't get to see anyway. It's not revealed. Oh. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I know. Smokes. Yeah. So. Uh, there, I recognize there may not there may be good reasons not to do that. I was just looking at of the future, and that's what made me think that. Yeah. I was trying to and, compare it to the yeah. So, and on top of all of that, this is a creature with prowess. Wow. Lest we not forget, this is the future site that you get to bash your opponent with. If you hit two Moxin and then a preordain, and you hit a top and you top a couple of times, you're going to bash them for seven, eight, nine damage. In addition to winning the game. <laughs> so let's just let's take a holistic look. So, what are the cards that have this effect? It's Experimental yeah. Frenzy, Mystic Forge, Bolasa Citadel. They all have the, you can look at your top card of your library at any time. You can play the top card of your library. Yeah, and the Majors of the Future and Future Sight, and there's ones for creatures that we talked about last time. But those are reveal, the top card. So you're, you're looking specific at the ones that let you look only, in which well, case, just, you're right, I, the, just, the recent ones are those. Yeah, you may look and doesn't reveal. Yeah. And then, but all the three more recent ones, so you can play the top card of your library with various levels of conditionality. <laughs> yeah. So this, I think this probably looks i mean it's fairly favorable compared to those 
obviously, Bolas' Citadel is six mana, and you have to pay life to cast the spell. But it this, favors, but Bolas' Citadel favors combo decks more because you can just play any spells, basically, once you have sufficient life. It's not mana limited. It's interesting that Mystic Forge is the most restrictive of the three, in some sense. Right? Yeah. Obviously, probably is the most build around synergies. Yep. But, wow. I think this card is interesting. I think it's out of reach of consistent playability. I think the fact that it's a creature does not make it uh, easier in some sense. In yeah. fact, all of the things it makes it more vulnerable. Yes. Um, I don't know if it makes it more vulnerable than an artifact, but it does. I also wonder, I also wonder how much immediate value you can get off this in a world where misstep is restricted, right? Because you, if <laughs> yeah. the, for the investment, you have to get an immediate payoff, not just a long-term payoff. You need some immediate value. I completely agree. The good news is, is you can play pitch magic. You can cast Force of Will or Misstep, Force of Negation, Force of Vigor, you know, what have you. So that's a plus. So this can defend itself with the top card in that sense. But to your point, it is vulnerable to everything we've got going that would fight a creature in our modern format. Meaning uh, we are going to uh, lose it to all the removal, Swords, Bolt, uh, Assassin's Trophy, Pyroblast. Yeah, lose it to Pyroblast, yeah. Caracas. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it gets disrupted by Karakas, good point. Oh, and by the way, I mean, th- there are some, this is disrupted heavily by Lavinia, too. Yeah. If In the sense that, if, you know, if you're going to play Pitch Magic off the top, you can't. If you're going to play Moxen off the top, how, you can't. How do, those, how do these layers work? You have static dueling static abilities that, that contradict each other. So if you, for example, if you had, your opponent had Teferi in play and you played this, does it matter which one was played first? Or is it just like a rule? No. Is there a layering rule that determines no, that? No, basically the, the removal of capabilities trumps the ability to do something. And it's worth noting that the definition of flash, but, the definition of that? flash. I didn't hear your answer. Yeah, the removal of capabilities trumps the ability to do something. It's worth noting I that see. the definition of flash is that you can play something when you could play an instant. Yes. And. The wording of Teferi is simply, you can only play stuff when you could play a sorcery. Ah! So, so it's an yeah. interesting loophole there. Yeah. That's right. You have to look at how the, the language interacts to, to derive the result in cases God. like that. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, El- Elsha doesn't let you break the rules constrained on you by anything that you're thinking of, like Teferi or Lavinia or Sphere of Resistance. Right. It doesn't let you break any of those rules. Well, I think this card or is... Grid. Yeah, or Defense Grid, right. I think this card is right on the cusp. I have a feeling that the format, even post-restriction, is too, uh, still too fast and punishing for a nice five-mana creature like this that's only a 3-3, and maybe you need to untap to get real value. So I'm going to go with zero, but I acknowledge that there's probably some individual games and situations where this would be a pretty back-breaking card. What do you think? So what I think here is I think that this is an immensely powerful effect. I think the value proposition is how effective it is it when you play it, and how much value is it the turn after you play it? I think the answer to the first question is quite limited. I think the answer to the second question is too limited. <laughs> because it's yeah. hard, like, with, with Mystic Forge and with Bolas of Citadel, the turn after it comes into play, once you get to untap, you can get immense value from it. But in a Jeskai-type deck, in a just a Jeskai control deck or a Jeskai Xerox deck, mm-hmm. either one, you're going to be hitting lands too frequently, and you're probably going to be able to do some sorcery stuff to ship those or a Dak Faden to get through it. But I'm not—I don't think you can get the quite the draw your deck ability that you can get from the other two, right? Which yeah. really put them over the top. If if Mystic Forge had had some sort of clause that said um, you can do you can play no more than three cards a turn this way, it probably wouldn't have been restricted, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just don't think it's quite enough, and I think the mana cost is too constraining. 
Yeah. And given the competition at, at this kind of mana cost, I wouldn't be surprised to see people play it. I wouldn't be surprised if it appears in the top eight, but we're not looking at a consistent top eight appearance here. Not in vintage. No. And given all the upheaval in the format at the moment, I I also am of the opinion that people's energy would not be on a card like this right, right. now. There's going to be a Too lot much. of energy on yeah on other recent printings and also just sorting out where we go from here in the format. Agreed. Okay, let's talk about Idol of Oblivion. Two generic mana. It's an artifact. Tap. Draw a card. Activate this ability only if you created a token this turn. <laughs> Eight. Tap, sacrifice idol of oblivion, create a 10-10 colorless Eldrazi creature token. So that second ability is not really of much value. Let's figure out how useful it is to pay <laughs> two mana to draw a card, and how conditional is it to generate tokens. In this day and age, yeah. it's pretty darn easy to generate tokens. I won- It really is. I mean, even the workshop decks of today are, can do it just incidentally with things like Karn. What strikes me, though, is how this kind of competes for Skull Clamp and a lot of those token-generating decks, you know? That you Good can point. just and skull clamp is a much higher exactly. ceiling. Exactly, you can just iterate it over and over and over again, yeah. which is hard to do here. This this does synergize very well with voltaic key though. So if you've generated that token, then it turns all your voltaic keys into mini James Day tomes as well. True. Yeah, I'm with you. The the skull clamp comparison I think is especially damning. <laughs> if a workshop deck wanted some way to just incrementally generate value and you had to have a token to do it, my instincts tell me that. A significant portion of the time, if you need a token to generate you value, your Skull Clamp is going to be a much better way to go. Both of them are turned off by Collector Oof. Both of them are disrupted by Force of Vigor into similar degrees. And the Clamp also has some marginal incidental additional value in that even if you're not clamping a token, you're still getting plus one power, right? So even if you're not generating value, you can still just clamp up a Foundry Inspector and get more damage in. I think your Clamp comparison is pretty damning against Idle, especially with a Restricted Mista. Now, the, this belies the question in my mind, is there another kind of deck, another kind of deck that's not workshop aggro, but that is expecting to generate tokens with some reliability and just wants this? Not that I can effect. think of. Yeah. I was thinking like a Pyromancer deck, for example, that deck also wants Skull Clamp more. Agreed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the comparison to Skull Clamp is pretty severe and really is, there's almost no situation I can think of where you're going to want this more than a Clamp. Especially given how this conditionality is presented. That too. Yeah, completely agree. All right, let's move on to Scroll of Fate. Three generic artifact. Tap, manifest a card from your hand. And just in case any of our listeners don't really remember the key to manifest, it says, uh, put a card onto the battlefield face down as a 2-2 creature. Turn it face up anytime for its mana cost, if it's a creature card. Steve, I don't bring this up on this list uh, for our audience here, because I think this is a good vintage card, I bring it up because I think it is a fixed version of a past great, and that is Illusionary <laughs> Man. I think this is, I think they finally figured out how you fix Illusionary Mask, and it really is just this simple. The manifest mechanic on a simple artifact, you can just tap it to do it. None of this mashuga about uh, faking what the mana cost is and, and hiding it. You just have put a creature face down, and I could flip it up by, by playing its mana cost. And it's very good, just as Mask was with Phyrexian Dreadnought. I don't think, I, I only think that this is worth a, a fun historical yeah. note, and it's not really for serious consideration in Vintage at the moment. Yeah, it's too bad that this is a tap ability, because then it really would be kind of the, the new Mask. It's cool, it's a cool <laughs> card. Yeah, and if and you, you are just dying to get some face-down Phyrexian Dreadnoughts into play, this card will do that for you. And you can do this with any card, though, right? So You may manifest any card, yes. You can only turn it face up if it's a creature. 
right so it's a value engine of a sort too yeah. if you're just out of threats you can just manifest a land yeah and you've got yourself a carlothus grizzly bear in perpetuity Seems like it might be really good and limited uh yes i would say it is unfortunately this set is going to be played almost never in a limited True. context just due to its nature all right let's finish up our commander review with one dockside extortionist one r creature goblin pirate dockside extortionist is a one two when dockside extortionist enters the battlefield create x treasure token where x is the number of artifacts and enchantments your opponents control that's it <laughs> it's a little token generator that's going to create you treasures sometimes a great many of them invented it has one of those fatal flaws that the more your opponent is kicking your butt the better it is right you never want a card like that you 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 want a card that's good when you're winning and that's good when you're losing but not a card that's weak when you're winning and awesome when you're losing right <laughs> yeah it's and also as such it's not really a very good come from behind card right yeah vintage is not really defined by how much more mana your opponent has than you you know in in the abstract there's not too many matchups where I'd be super excited to have drawn this when my opponent has three or more artifacts in play. Because, well, Karn has a lot to do with that. At the moment, anyone who's going to have three to five artifacts in play probably has Karn in play and I'm just loose. <laughs> and also, the treasures this gives you don't do anything. So yeah. that's sad. And in a, I mean, in a paradoxical outcome kind of context, yeah, you could play this on turn one. You could landmox extortionist and they've got, you know, two moxen and a top in play and you just made three treasures. I suppose that's okay if you're really planning to use those treasures right away for various colored spells. This card doesn't synergize with outcome directly because you can't bounce tokens with outcome. I don't know. I think it's, it's cute. It's fun to analyze. It's fun to discuss. Much like Elsha, there are probably a handful of games out there in the universe of vintage games where this is really the bee's knees. It's really awesome. Yeah. Where you get color screwed and you want to cast a pyroblast and a swords to plowshares right. and, and an ancestral all at the same time or something. I don't know. The other, <laughs> but otherwise, I, I just don't think it's worth the investment. The other problem is, even if you could, you know, use this in some useful way, the man in some useful way, the reliable amount of treasures you're going to get is incredibly swinging from matchup to matchup. So you're going to get no value in a ton of matchups, and some value in a smaller number of matchups, right? Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Like that, there's super high variance there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And also, this card pretty much favors unfavorably with simply Grim Monolith. <laughs> <laughs> harsh <laughs> right <laughs> now granted yeah there's color there's color issues and there's meaning you could get colored mana out of these treasures and there's ceiling issues right you can get way more mana out of this in some situations but generally speaking i don't want that kind of inconsistency that you describe yeah i'm gonna go zero yeah, I'm going to go zero as well. And that brings us to the end of our Commander 2019 review. It's no surprise to me that we are not seeing a high volume of playables in a Commander set anymore. It's been that way for a while, and they did that kind of thing on purpose. They didn't want to have a repeat of Flusterstorm and True Name Nemesis, as they did with the first ever set. But we'll keep our eye on it. So let's get to what will clearly be the largest portion of the show, our analysis of today's Bannered Restricted List update. Steve, we've been at this kind of BNR update analysis for a while now, <laughs> and we've gotten into a little bit of a groove for how we structure these conversations. So 
If it's all right with you, I think I'd like to start by reading uh, at least some of the details up front, and then we can get to analysis. How does that sound? I think you should um, lead with the announcement, and then Mm -hmm. we'll parse the description a paragraph or sentence at a time. Very good. There's a lot of text here, so there's no point in my trying to read it all again. Read it once and then having to read it all again. I agree. So, for today's announcement, I'll skip standard and modern. Vintage. Karn, the great creator, is restricted. Mystic Forge is restricted. Mental Misstep is restricted. Golgari Grave Troll is restricted. And Fast Bond is unrestricted. So that's five changes, Kevin. Yeah, I know that you're good for a history lesson for us here. So Steve, tell me about how five changes in one (laughs) announcement compare. So five changes is a pretty dramatic shakeup of the format, Kevin. Um, Mm -hmm. Including today and including the original uh, Ben and Restricted List announcement creating the ban and restricted list in January of 1994. There are 40 ban and restricted list changes to the format that would become known as vintage. Okay. Kevin, in that time, there have only been seven announcements, including the original creation of the ban and restricted list that restricted four or more cards at one time. And those include the original announcement, January 1994. Um, three months later, the restriction of five more cards, the restriction of four cards following antiquities, the restriction of seven cards following legends, um, 18 restrictions in October of 1999, the four in October of 2000, which included Necropotence getting restricted, um, and then the five that were restricted in June of 2008, which included Ponder, uh, Flash, Merchant Scroll, Brainstorm, and Gush. Um, so right. there have, we haven't had that many restrictions in a long, long time. It's been, it's been ten, over 10 years since we've had four or more cards restricted at a time. Um, so this is pretty and- rare. And that last major event in 2008, it's pretty widely understood to have been a bit overreaching exactly. at the time. Exactly. Yeah? Mm. Because part of the reason for that so. was because they hit five cards basically out of the same decks. <laughs> you know, there yeah. were systemic <laughs> effects that each restriction would have on the other card that they really didn't account for, I think. Right, right. Um, and they had to provide so. three subsequent explanations for it because the community pushback was so intense. <laughs> so this is a so, really rare uh, event. Well, and it's... Even more so when you put it into the context of many of those early actions were just the format, I mean, the format creation. You can, you can't really count that, right? And then the next couple of waves were, were basically the DCI figuring out what the format even was, yeah. right? And so to my eyes, you don't count the next two or three either because it was just, Hey, we didn't really understand what we had created. It's like modern. They pick a starting list and then you realize what you did wrong and fix it. And <laughs> so I don't even count those next two. In my opinion, the only, wave that this really compares to is that 2008 wave yeah wouldn't you say well it's hard again it's hard to compare to that because this is really hitting a smattering of of archetypes it's almost it's almost seems calculated to hit different archetypes with each restriction um in an almost really tailored way whereas this was a so in that sense it's more of like a scattershot whereas those were like um just a sledgehammer to one or two related (laughs) archetypes by the way one other historical note with these restrictions, there have now been exactly 100 restrictions in the history of the format, and 50 in 51 wow. unrestrictions, bringing the current vintage restricted list to 49. Interesting. So almost half of the, more than half of the restrictions have been unwound historically. But it is interesting we finally hit 100. <laughs> oh. My my friend Kirsten asked me with the restriction of Grave Troll, do we have the most creatures restricted in vintage now? Uh, we've ever had. I could tell you that it would take a moment. Um, because I know there were a, a rash of them early on, like Ali from Cairo well, the, the, and, res- and the, other the creatures things. that were restricted early on were Ali from Cairo and Rook Egg. Mm-hmm. 
Um, both <laughs> okay. were, both were yeah. unrestricted. There was also um, Tempest or Freet was banned and never restricted. Temerian oh. Fiends was banned. Yep. So those don't really count. Um, those those are the those are the only two. So yes, now we have more than we ever had before with Mentor, Lodestone Golem, and now Grave Troll. Interesting. We've passed an interesting threshold here. Obviously, the fact that Golgari Grave Troll is a creature is somewhat incidental yeah. <laughs> to the situation and not the primary reason it was restricted. For sure. So how do you want to structure our conversation? So we go in the order that they um, cover them in the yeah, announcement? Yeah, let's just start with, let's just go through it, and then I have some comments to make, and I'm sure you do as well. So let's just yeah. read it off. Well, let me, I guess I should read the first few introductory paragraphs, yeah. because they're not necessarily card Start with specific. the first two, and then we'll, we'll stop. Yeah. War of the Spark, Modern Horizons, and Corset 2020 have been among the most impactful sets for Vintage in years. We've been watching and listening to the evolution of Vintage over the last several months as the metagame has begun to settle. Now that the London Mulligan is official, and we've had some time to review data and tournament results, we'd like to take action to resolve some problematic play pattern. Emphasis there. Though our data shows that Vintage is in a good state of balance from an objective standpoint, with nearly all the top 10 decks having 47 to 53% overall win rate, we've heard community concerns about an increase in turn one or turn two effective wins and less interactive gameplay. We agree and would like to move the format back to a place the community is happy with, even taking multiple steps over time if needed. So let's pause and just reflect on a few things here. First, let's emphasize the fact that despite the complaints that from the community that the DCI does not, the convocation does not pay attention to win rates or the tournament data, this clearly indicates that they do. That they actually yeah. looked and saw that basically Vintage is a pretty healthy place in terms of balance. And balance is, as we've seen from previous banned and restricted list announcements, it specifically refers to the win rates across, win rates across the metagame. And so what they look, mm-hmm. they look for is to see whether certain archetypes have much higher win rates than others in a consistent and sustainable way or persistent way. And um, this shows that from a balanced perspective, the vintage metagame is in a pretty good place. But I'd like to actually point out something else, Kevin. This is a good mm-hmm. place as any. So it might be in a good place from a balanced perspective, but from a diversity perspective, the metagame is actually not in a particularly healthy place. So I want to just recount some data that I've collected from the vintage challenges. Okay. Sound good? Yep. So we, yep. it's been a while since we did a metagame update. Um, I want to just focus on July and August. We've had four of the five vintage challenges in August, which is a good time to kind of do a recap. And there were four vintage challenges in, in July. Um, and the, um, the, um, London Mulligan took effect on at the beginning of July, July one, um, in, in online on paper about a week later. Um, so, Here's what actually the, the results are. Ready for July? So for July, the metagame was not particularly balanced. Shop decks, <laughs> shop decks were, were about 19% of top eights. PO decks were 13% of top eights and Jeskai decks were 9% of top eights. So that would sound pretty balanced, but here's the problem. Dredge was 34% of top eights, <laughs> which is by far its greatest percentage. And bug decks were 13% of top eights, and the rest, DPS had one top eight, um, survival had a top eight, uh, rug mid-range Ren decks, which are not Xerox decks, had 6% of top eights, and that was basically the entirety of the July top eights, 100% of top eights in July. So kind of dredge surge to the top, and 
You may remember this, but I've used this statistic in the past. It's called the Gini Simpson score, and it's a hybrid measure. So it looks at both at diversity and it also looks at um, balance. So it looks at both. And the Gini Simpson score, if you remember from the article I wrote last year, a good Gini Simpson score is basically in the high, high 80s because it runs from zero to one. Um, and the Gini Simpson score in July fell from Kevin, it fell from the mid from May being 0.929, about basically 0.93, a very, very good score to 0.8548, Um, so that suggests some slippage in terms of diversity and balance. Um, but things got really bad in August. So the August results were only four of the five so far, but are you ready for this, Kevin? This is, this is not, not great. So first of all, I'll start with Dredge, which was 34% of July top eights. It fell to 9% of top eights in August. Mm-hmm. Isn't that incredible? That's a huge drop. Yeah, it went from, albeit nine is, is more typical what we think of for Dredge's portion of the metagame, but that's a yeah, huge in fact, drop. That's the lowest percentage the Dredge had since February. So it went from being 11 okay. out of 32 to three out of 32. <laughs> yep. Um, so Dredge saw a significant drop off. Um, Workshop Karn Mystic Forge decks fell to 16%. So they actually fell from July to August from 19 to 16%. Uh, PO fell from 13 to 9%. Um, mm-hmm. Just Guy Mentor and Turbo Xerox actually fell to 6%. Now here's the crazy thing. Oh, there's a smattering of three percenters, one, one ofs. It, like there was a, Naturally. there was a survival deck. There was an interesting bug, dark depths deck. There was a, um, a, a, mon- a mono right. red hate deck, but here's the big, big, big change. Ru- bug bug went from 13 percent to 47 percent of top eights. Wow, 40, 47. <laughs> I knew it was a lot, but holy moly! I don't. Uh, okay. I don't think I have any record anywhere in the f- f- basically 2009, 2008, 2007, even 2016 data points. I have. I don't think I have record of anything in one month being. 47%. Now, obviously, when the vintage challenges went from monthly to weekly, that's different. But even 47% is basically an unheard of number. And yeah. you could say, well, bug at 47% is really healthy because bug is a good deck. It's really interactive. It's fun to play, blah, blah, blah. I think that is indicative of an unhealthy environment. It's certainly not diverse. Yeah. And I think when you look under the hood and see what's happening, it's clear that bug is is at its kind of apogee for a reason, right? Because it's holding in check these other decks, the Karn decks and the Dredge decks. And and I mm-hmm. think, actually, the Genie Simpson score for August, again, we don't have all the data in yet, but the Genie Simpson score has fallen really off a cliff to 0.782, which is really low. It's 0.78. Um, and again, mm-hmm. a good score is in the high 80s, low 90s. And if you want a point of reference for that, in my article last year in which I showed the Genie Simpson scores, since 2015, um, the low point, the lowest point on record was in the summer of 2017, which the scores were basically about 0.69, 0.68. So it's not quite that bad, but there only are one, two, three, four, five, six data points in the last five years that are under 0.8, and this is one of them. So this is clearly not a good place in terms of balance and diversity. Um, yeah. But so I wish that I wish that he had acknowledged that even though the win rates are okay, the diversity is not okay. <laughs> it's the diversity has kind of fallen both in July and August to really concerning levels. And I, I think yeah, I think agreed. that's important for people to keep in mind that this wasn't just counterplay reasoning 
you know, the, but there are some actually objective data problems with the format right now. Um, awesome. So let's, so, uh, so, um, let's, let's just proceed, but I wanted to share that data. I would like to point to a couple of key phrases that are represented in this, these first two paragraphs. One of them is problematic play patterns, which is, uh, an interesting and noteworthy point to make on their part because play patterns are not typically part of the standard observe, observe factors when the banner restrict decisions are made, especially not on this scale. There's, a, I think, a little bit of an unprecedented level to which play patterns may have informed this decision, yeah. to your point. And the other thing is the the fact that they acknowledge that the community concerns are a strong influencer on this particular decision. Yes. Because they they are contrasting, Ian is contrasting the comparative health of win rates right. for top 10 decks across the format with the fact that the community is still concerned about turn one into effective right. wins and less interactive it's gameplay. Not, so there's, it's there's not, a double reference to play right. patterns. It's not clear exactly what that means in terms of turn one or two effective win rates and what wins and what data they use or evidence they use to support that. I also find it interesting they use the word less interactive gameplay because in the past, Ian Duke has typically spoken in terms of counterplay, which is, I think, a much more useful heuristic. It helps us think about how does a card interact in a way that allows, that prevents players from doing something about it, right? Like Trinosphere is kind of the epitome of a card that inhibits counterplay. There's a very, a very yeah. limited number of things you can do about it. Um, and so I think counterplay is a more, is a, is a more, um, useful frame for thinking about this underlying concern. So in the article that I wrote a couple of weeks ago and has been published, I basically said there are basically four criteria that I have seen used by the DCI in restricting cards. The first is diversity, which they explicitly mention in their statement on the ban and restricted list. They that the purpose of the ban and restricted list is to promote promote diversity. Archetype diversity, strategic diversity, color diversity, whatever you want to call it. The second is balance. They've used that a number of times to make restrictions and, and bannings and standard rather. And and it's clear that balance is I like to call it dominance because it you look over time, right? If you see one archetype just consistently winning at a higher rate, like sixty-five percent, it usually is a dominant archetype and is a target for restriction. Yeah. The third is counterplay, and it's which we just talked about, Trinosphere, Flash, right? The limited opportunities to actually do anything about what, what those cards are doing. But the final one that he's used in one or two articles in the past is polarization. Polarization isn't frequently used because it's computationally difficult. You actually have to figure out what not only the overall win rates of a deck is, of an archetype is across the field, but then you have to figure out what the inter-deck, the, the between matchup win rates are. And the ideal, the idea of polarization is that basically you have a rock, paper, scissors metagame where against one deck, you have like a, an archetype has a 40% matchup and against another, a 60%. And the problem with polarization is it creates a kind of randomness and a kind of helplessness that you could win the tournament or do well in a tournament or really bad in a tournament, not based upon the decisions you made or your deck selection or your in-game play, but because of the, what you are lucky enough to face or not, right? And to an extreme right. polar, this polarity metric, I think, is a very valid reason to make restrictions. You don't want a format that seems just totally random. That's all just hyper matchup dependent, like rock, paper, scissors. But that's clearly not yeah. the problem here, because I assume that this overall win rate is not only overall match win rates, but also intermatch win rates, that the, the match win rates are probably pretty balanced between archetypes as well. I'm just assuming that it could, it could mask in, inter archetype extreme variance among inter archetype win rates, but I assume that's not what's happening here. 
Um, it doesn't. I don't think the metagame really feels hyper polarized. I mean, it's obviously if you're playing Karn or Dredge and you hit Bug, it's not great. But I don't think that matchup is like super lopsided in either case. I don't, you know, and in, in even in between Dredge and Karn, I think it's probably pretty interesting. How do you, Steve, reconcile the extreme results we've seen for Bug of late, forty-seven percent number, <laughs> yeah. with Ian's assertion that the all all the top ten decks have a forty-seven to fifty-three it's, win rate. Now he does real, say nearly all the top. It's 10 really decks. hard to square. I think that I think yeah. that, the, here's how I, I'd square it. I think that what they're doing is they're the data point here is probably stale. That they haven't gotten yeah. the full August calculations in here. That this was probably calculated a couple of weeks ago when they actually did the numbers. Because remember, I'm looking at August, the four weeks in August, and he's probably looking at some. You know, he's probably looking at July and August and aggregating yeah. that, where I'm disaggregating by month, and he's looking across months. So his sample is a cross section across July and August, maybe the beginning of August. And I'm looking just at August, right? So I think that's probably how that's squared. I, My guess is if you were to look yeah. today, the bug win rates are probably above the rest of the field. They have to be because top eights are a function significantly. So. Top eights are a function yeah. of representation and win rate. So. It, it is technically possible for that not to be right. the case, but it seems highly. The only low. way that would yeah. not be the case is if if um the win rate I mean if the top eight proportions matched the metagame proportions. Right. If bug was forty seven percent of the field, then we're back to fifty percent exactly. win rate base. But I'm pretty or sure that's about. not what happened. <laughs> I I mean we don't yeah. have the full metagame think, breakdown, but I'm pretty sure it's win I think there's yeah. I think there's another uh, a uh, piece of evidence that supports your assertion that their win rate calculation is both a little stale and also over a broader time period. And that's the simple fact that they restricted Grave Troll. Yeah. The only way in well, recent memory that you would have restricted Grave Troll is if you had been looking back a few months ago. Uh, well, if right? you were looking at top eight percentages or you're looking at win rates, certainly. I think Dredge kind of fell off a cliff in August. But I, yeah. I also think they didn't restrict Grave Troll on either diversity or balance grounds. <laughs> well, you make a fair point. We can get to that. So let's talk some individuals then, because the next paragraph, while it does mention some specific cards, is still more of a general one. So Ian writes, Recently, Karn the Great Creator and Mystic Forge have turbocharged shop decks by giving them more early game lockout potential through Karn's static ability, a tutorable win condition through Karn's minus two loyalty ability fetching Time Vault and Voltaic Key or Manifold Key, and card advantage in a prolong in prolonged games, especially through Mystic Forge. Relating to Karn's static ability, Vintage is the one format in Magic where players can enjoy playing with super powerful down super powerful artifact mana like the Mox and Soul Ring and Black Lotus. We'd like to reduce the number of games that immediately come down to an early Karn preventing your opponent from casting spells. There's a couple of things here. The, the phrase turbocharged is funny to me. Obviously I it's pretty clear that that's referring to game speed, right? early game lockout potential through Karn's uh, static ability and a tutorable win condition. The simple truth is that Karn does it all in this format, right? He's disruptive and a win condition. The reason why he was the most played card from that set continues to be of late. And the simple truth is, is that they have alluded to this, this uh, kind of amorphous concept that in vintage, you should be able to play with all your cards. Yes. This, right? this kind of came up when they were in the, in the restriction of Chalice of the Void. Language like this mm -hmm. was used about playing your mm -hmm. Moxon. Let me just say, though, that they don't say here that Karn or Mystic Forge dominated the format. They don't say that they had an absurdly high win percentage. They're, 
Mm-hmm. They're basically articulating a view of, of counterplay, right? Specifically about preventing the opponent from playing spells. And I think... Yep. This is under the heading of problematic play patterns, which he used in his topic right. paragraph. And I think that there are basically reasonable grounds for restricting both cards on that. In my article, I said that I thought Mystic Forge should be restricted and not Karn. And the main reason is because Workshop can cast Mystic Forge. And therefore, it's just a much more consistent turn one card um, without really upside. But I think both cards are problematic from a counterplay perspective, a pure counterplay perspective. Now, Mystic Forge, oddly enough, may be easier to counterplay against immediately um, because you can... You know, it's you could. It's just easier to destroy artifacts than it is planeswalkers, right? The problem I have yep. is that Mystic Forge needs to be answered immediately, and if you don't, if you give an opponent another turn, they can just draw their entire deck. Um, the difference, <laughs> and, and as compared, just a moment, as compared to Karn too, if you destroy a Mystic Forge when they've put their first spell from it on the stack, you've limited the amount of value they've gotten right. from it, right? They've you've basically traded them two for one, but still, it's they've limited the value. Against Karn, if it resolves and they activate that search ability, if you blew it up in response, they can still just kill you that turn or the next one. They've well, gotten so much of the value out of that Karn by having reached right. play. So I think in in terms of counterplay, Karn is potentially... It's harder to overcome a Karn. It's harder to destroy Karn. It's harder to prevent Karn from being used. It's harder to prevent the opponent from assembling the combos, especially Mycosynth yeah. Lattice. The Time Vault will take key combo is just as vulnerable as to... For, uh, to force of vigor as Mystic Forge. I think the problem is that Mystic Forge can come down and me- win immediately, whereas Karn basically very, very rarely wins the exact turn it comes into play. So it usually wins the next turn, like Tezzeret. It's basically Tezzeret. True. So from that perspective, I think it cut. It's weird, right? They, they're kind of cut in both directions. Mystic Forge is easier to yeah. remove, therefore has more counterplay options. But Karn is more disruptive immediately and therefore has less counterplay options. But Karn takes another turn to win, whereas Mystic Mystic Forge has a higher ability capacity to just win immediately. And therefore, in that sense, Karn Karn is actually has more counterplay options than Mystic Forge. So there it's kind of a wash in that respect. Um I just think that Karn is not a consistent turn one win at uh, turn one play. It may be a frequent turn one play, and therefore I would have preferred to start with Mystic Forge's restriction and not Karn, but I don't think it's an unreasonable re- immediate restriction. I would agree with all of that. The The simple truth, too, is that Karn protects himself in multiple ways. Because you get two, two searches out of Karn and he still stays yes. in play, it means you can get Time Vault and um, Defense Grid, for example, yes. and not be vulnerable to the, the Force of Vigor that you mentioned earlier and many other things. It's just and, Karn is, is very much akin to Lodestone Golem, in my opinion. And, no, the game doesn't end right there, but it's putting all the pressure on, and it's disrupting you in the process. Yeah, I think, again, the difference is that Lonesome Golem can be played off a workshop. I also think that the London Mulligan oh, has, has played a significant role in both of these cards, <laughs> being more problematic than they yeah, would have otherwise. Th- thank, you for, thank you for mentioning that. And the London Mulligan has done things like make Grim Monolith, especially paired with Voltaic Key, more reliable at casting Karn in the first exactly. turn. Exactly. It right? It's more reliable. I don't so, think it's nearly as consistent as Forge, obviously. So, but no, it, yeah, it couldn't be. No, it, it's, it's impossible and, for Karn to be as consistent as Forge just by definition. But the simple truth is, they both can be above an, in an acceptable threshold. One of the reasons we'll get to this, but since these are systemic relationships, I think it needs to be mentioned. One of the reasons that I wanted to wait to see if Karn should be restricted is because if you restrict mental misstep, you make things like Spell Pierce and Pithy Needle more playable and therefore more played. And to the extent they're more played, they could potentially be present more answers to cards like Karn. So I wanted to see if Spell Pierce 
sees a jump in play, which I expect it will, and cards like Thoughtseize, mm-hmm. and therefore reduce a little bit the problem of Karn. Um, but we never got to that point, which I'm disappointed to see. Because, I mean, Thoughtseize still works against Karn, even if the opponent has Karn in play, right? I mean, they get the Time Vault, you can just Thoughtseize it out on your first turn if they got turn one Karn. So I'm, I'm disappointed that we didn't get to see that, but I, I think in terms of counterplay, this is a, a reasonable, it's not an unreasonable restriction. Yeah, agree completely. There is some additional language here about shops in general and these choices, and this has an interesting point. This is the next paragraph. Therefore, in order to make shop decks more interactive in the early game and more attackable in a prolonged game, we are restricting Karn the Great Creator and Mystic Ford. We considered the further step of restricting Sphere of Resistance, but prefer to take this smaller step first and reevaluate based on data and community feedback. I think it's so interesting that they were debating Sphere over, say, Grim Monolith or Mox Opal or uh, Rich Shea's yeah. preference card, which is Foundry Inspector. Or, you know, we've talked about other cards like Phyrexian Revoker, which, again, is a Rich Shea card he's talked about restricting in the past. Sphere yeah. is not, I mean, again, they restricted Thorn, so Sphere is very logical from that perspective. But it seems to me that Grim Monolith would be would precede Sphere in terms of being a consideration to restrict. Now, obviously, maybe the restriction of Karn and Mystic Forge has obviated the need to have that discussion, but I do find it curious nonetheless. It's worth noting that Sphere of Resistance has only put up one top eight in August <laughs> in Challenge. <laughs> yeah. Like, Sphere is not Part a... Of this it's archetype. not. It's simply not a feature of the modern archetype that they're referring to here. So one of two things has happened here. One is they don't understand how the deck has is presenting today, and that's a possibility. I don't see how they could if they've been gone this deep on the data, but it's a possibility. The other is that they are foreseeing right. s- uh, secondary impact. They're anticipating that the that, decks will go back yeah. to Sphere and still be a problem. Yeah, they're anticipating Workshop that, Aggro with Sphere maybe still being a problem with these restrictions. Yeah, I'd like to give them enough credit and say that's probably the, the more likely reason. It's strange to see them... I mean, that's some deep... <laughs> You know, third order the thought it's, process on their part, which gives them credit, I would say, but is set some that's some dangerously unprecedented waters we're in yeah, there. It's, it's not clear. <laughs> if you're talking they, about preemptively restricting the card that they would play in place of these. Yeah, is it's wild. really not clear how they would arrive at that. You're right. It's like just sphere is not played in this archetype as it's constituted in the last two months. Yeah. So it's very odd. Very odd. Yeah, it, it's it's almost funny to say it the way I'm saying it. It's pretty clear what they were thinking there, but uh, I'm very very glad that they didn't go down that road. Shall we move on yes. and talk about yeah, Dredge? Quoting Ian, Dredge decks based around Bazaar of Baghdad have become more powerful with the London Mulligan and some recent card additions such as Force of Vigor as it mean, as a means of fighting opposing graveyard hate. In order to slow these decks down and provide more time for interaction, we are restricting Golgari Grave Trolls. So there are a number of interesting things here. Number one, again, they use the term interaction. I would have preferred their previous frame counterplay, but the point is still the same. Their objective here is to slow the deck down, to weak, not just weaken it, but to slow it down. I think if, if that is truly their objective, they've accomplished their objective. I honestly think that of all the cards they could have restricted, uh, that are part of the engine, that aren't part of the carapace of defense or disruption, <laughs> but the, the yeah. kind of engine parts, right? You, your options are Bizarre Baghdad, Serum Powder, um, Golgari Grave Troll, Stinkweed Imp, Narco Amoeba, mm-hmm. Icarid, um, therapy. Therapy. I get, that's more of a disrupt. That's part of that disruptive. I don't really think Hollow One is a card that would have. S- therapy is an engine. Yeah, card. but I said no, that isn't part of the disruption package. So, um, well, okay. Um, so your those are your options, and at the end of the day, I think you basically your options are if you don't want to hit Bazaar or Serum Powder, 
restricting serum powder was right. a really interesting case in the London Mulligan world. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, and, it, and I think it might have been a better target. Um, but it doesn't necessarily... has a very similar effect, though. Yeah, it, it does. I think probably in the long run, it probably does. Um, but if you wanted to hit something that's not bizarre, right? Um, you're yep. basically, I think your, your main targets are Narcomoeba or Grave Troll or Serum Powder to a lesser degree. I think Icarid is only played as like a two of in some. I think, I think it's crazy. I think you want to use at least three Icarids, but people, hey, people <laughs> win, are winning with two. Um, Narcomoeba is clearly one of the core cards. Maybe that would be too crippling. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to know exactly which, which would have been more crippling. It is interesting that like, mo- unless you exile the Grave Troll with Serum Powder, most of the time you're going to get to the, tr- you're going to find the troll within a turn or two. You know, with probably within two turns, I, is my guess. You know, um, and once you get obviously past halfway through your deck, your chances of finding it are over 50%. Um, but your rate of dredging is going to be slow and slower and Stinkweed Imp is mo- going to be much more important. Um, I think, I think <laughs> my guess is that hitting Narcomoeba would have been m- more crippling. And so Grave Troll, this is less crippling. But it does make Force of Vigor harder to use because you now, mm-hmm. I think the dredge decks have to go full on four shambling shell. So I think the configuration of dredgers is now four shambling shell, four stink, uh, stinkweed imp, one Golgar grape troll, and maybe even like one thug just to, because you just need another, yeah. you know, a little bit more umph in that. Yep. Um, yep, yep. The other thing is I think dredge is just slowed down and hurt by the restriction of misstep. And so I don't think that they fully accounted for that here. I think, again, they ignored the system-level effects and evaluated this in isolation. Um, I mean, Dredge loses six cards from these this announcement. It loses mm-hmm. That's a, a significant chunk out of its deck. It is as impacted numerically as the Forge decks that had four Exactly, deep. exactly. Um, so I think in terms of accomplishing their objective, they did it. But I also don't think that they're crediting precisely how much restricting misstep would also... I'll open up counterplay. It might not see the problem with with viewing dredge in just in terms of clock speed, meaning turn speed, <laughs> is that you're ignoring that that's not really how dredge operates. It's not like dredge is goldfishing every game. Most of dredge's right. games are actually highly interactive post board games, and therefore, like yep. slowing it down is not actually the goal. The goal is to create more counterplay, right? And so I think. I think that act- now obviously you can accomplish that indirectly by slowing the deck, right? If you slow something down, you thereby indirectly create more counterplay. But I think that they underestimated the effect of misstep in terms of creating more counterplay against Dredge. Um, we'll see how this plays out. I, I don't think it's going to be good for Dredge. I think it could potentially cripple Dredge, but we'll see. What do- what's your take? There's a number of elements there. I, I agree with you strongly that the lack of addressing misstep in the Dredge context here is is stands out they do have a sentence in the next paragraph that's about misstep that says in addition dredge decks often use mental misstep to protect their graveyard engine or disrupt opponent so they they acknowledge that misstep is hitting dredge but it's kind of like a saying dredge also plays this card but they didn't make any assessment of what removing it actually does to it the the i feel like the addressing speed as one of the metrics i'm going to reread the sentence in order to slow these decks down and provide more time for interaction I agree with you that uh, trying to measure dredge by its goldfish speed is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it does and where it's at in the metagame. I also think that the allusion to speed here is probably more of a 
a shorthand for the the complex systemic effects of what the the values and numbers on your dredge cards does to the way the deck plays. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's real hard to say that which I just said and make have it make sense. It's a lot easier to just say slow these decks down. Yeah, right. Exactly. We, it's not a good sentence to say we wanted to reduce the overall average values of dredging. You know, well, it's it's well, too what they cumbersome. could have said is something like we want to provide more opportunity for opposing strategies to to combat dredge as it progresses through its game plan, right? Or they could have said, we want to create more opportunities for counterplay. <laughs> that, that's really simple. We want to create more opportunities for counterplay, meaning, you know, more opportunities through more turns yeah. for opponents to play cards to interact. But the problem is that it really suggests a misunderstanding of the dredge deck, that game one, it's <laughs> one game, and then games two and three is a totally different game, right? And so, like, the post-board yeah. games are I- not a boat race, <laughs> I, I'm completely with you. The, I I I feel like there's a challenge with the sentence you proposed that does, does it, it doesn't subsequently tie the restriction of Golgari Grave Troll to any of the things well, you said. Have... The, and the linchpin the linchpin phrase is time, yes. and I'm saying that's well, just a shorthand for a really complicated topic well, that's not worth going well, the, into. The, the, the linchpin phrase that's is slow these decks down, right? Sl- yeah, right, it's time. time and that's time I mean. in terms of yeah. turns. And I agree with you. I think that's, I do think that the, what I said though is more time, more opportunity for counterplay can be translated yeah. or equated into turns, right? Because of the assumption, the underlying well, yeah, assumption sure, sure. is that if an opponent has more turns to play, then they have more opportunities to do things that matter in terms of influencing yeah. the game outcome. So I don't really. So let's well, move on then to talk about. I just don't know how the- much this is actually going to slow those decks down by. I don't know if it's a half a turn, a full turn. We'll see. I actually <laughs> think the more significant effect is it's going to make force of vigor less reliable deck construction yeah yeah that's what i was just about to say it's i I also think that the deck construction impact is far more important the fact that they won't doubly so through misstep and vigor won't be able to answer cage as effectively is has dramatic um tertiary effects on the way you construct dredge and i think that it will have a cascading effect and the dredge decks will actually start to look significantly you have to run find more green spells now because you just don't have enough with i don't know whether that means more hogak or what but we're going to see some big differences i think it I think we'll see more Hogak. I think we might see a return to something like main deck nature's yeah. claim, something maybe like that. Maybe even some like, blood see, gas um, configurations again life, with lands. Yeah, and life from the loam is a card that pitches to uh, force of vigor. Yeah, we'll see. We'll so, see. Th- there's a lot of options still, but but I do think this emphasis on the speed of the deck really just belies uh, um, a lack of understanding about what's really important about the decisions they made. Well, it's made. also interesting to think about the concept of counterplay, right? Typically, counterplay we think about it or have thought about it in terms of a card or a particular interaction. Like, what's the counterplay potential vis-a-vis Karn? Or the counterplay potential vis-a-vis Mystic Forge? Or the counterplay potential vis-a-vis Trinisphere or Hulk Flash, right? Now, there are mm-hmm. decks that are built around those tactics, right? But, I mean, if you're going to make a counterplay restriction for Dredge, why now? Now, presumably because the London Mulligan and because of the, the, the power boost it's gotten from Force of Vigor, but I think just the notion of slowing it down I mean, it's not like it's more, it's faster now. Like, Dredge isn't faster now. It's just more disruptive. Right. Right. Just more disruptive, so, more resilient. So, I think yeah. that that is a, like, look, there is a relationship between deck clock speed and is measured in terms and counterplay, right? The faster a deck is in terms of count a deck, not a card or a tactic or an interaction, but the faster a deck is in terms of pure counterplay potential, I mean, uh, speed, the, the less counterplay potential there is. So, if a deck consistently can turn win on turn one, that's going to dramatically limit limit the counterplay potential. Now, there is no such deck in, in Vintage, and there really never has been. There have been some things that have been theoretically close, but they're usually gas 
glass cannons. So I think I, I mean, think very you, what <laughs> very, very glass, glass cannons. Can- so I I don't know. It's it's weird to frame speed in terms of counterplay. Um, just straight up. Usually counterplay we're talking about in terms of like what are the possibilities in terms of tactics, right? So that's a, a an interesting relationship here. And I think as an underlying principle, it could be dangerous to apply it outside of dredge, disconnected from performance, which they don't really do, right? Because if you're yeah. just talking about play pattern, then why is Belcher unrestricted? Or why is like, you know, <laughs> the um what are those uh, silly rogue hermits? Why are those unrestricted, right? So we have to make some assumptions that this isn't just about speed. It's about power and disruption combined with speed and overall counterplay. I just, I I just wish they had explained that a little bit more. Yeah. And when push comes to shove, because of the lack of emphasis of misstep in the, the, the grave troll um, paragraph, this kind of feels like they have restricted two cards in dredge and they didn't need (laughs) like, and the fact that dredge is an offhand reference <laughs> in the mental misstep uh, paragraph when there was apparently a dredge paragraph, so to speak, I guess it's really a grave troll paragraph. I don't know. I'm, That's I'm splitting the problem, hairs right? Here. The, point the other is, two cards are really about tactics, right? In shops, they're about yeah. ta- they're about these like yeah. deck. I mean, what we call a deck is is you know when it comes to Karn and Mystic Forge, they've kind of blended into one overall strategy. Right, but but we were really focused yep. on what Karn and Mystic Forge do. Here, it's it seems like they're targeting dredge, not a particular tactic. Yeah, that's a good point. You're just trying to make this deck less good, <laughs> <laughs> which is a different thing. The um, I do wish I do think that restricting mental misstep would have hurt dredge enough for one wave. That of was restric- my position. I really that don't was my think, position. Yeah, I really don't think troll was necessary that's, that's here. My, I mean, look, you haven't restricted... The DCI hasn't restricted anything since 2000... Three years ago, 2017. Yep. If you, you, there's not... There's nothing that says you have to do everything at once, right? I mean, you can take these things <laughs> yeah. piecemeal, observe changes, and then decide what to do next. That's kind of what's so well, odd about this. It's like... It, let's let's yeah. save some of that more for... Until we get okay. to the end. Um, all right, so there's a mental misstep paragraph here. Mental misstep has been a controversial card among the vintage community for years. While it does provide more opportunity for interaction, it is also at its strongest against the most interactive decks. Moreover, a large part of the, re- the reason for including mental misstep is to fight an opponent's mental missteps. This creates a situation where many decks are quote-unquote taxed deck slots that they must devote to fighting each other at the expense of weakening themselves against shops. In addition, dredge decks often use mental misstep to protect their graveyard engine or disrupt opponents. We believe that restricting mental misstep will open up more deck building diversity, strengthen interactive decks matchups against shops, and weaken dredge. So there's a lot there. Let's just, before we even analyze it, let's just break, let's just try to distill the core reasons. The first is this taxing argument that misstep creates this like need to for other decks to have more missteps to combat missteps so this taxing concept the arms race what's that the The arms arms race race. the old arms race the second concept Uh is that um this taxing effect has a byproduct which is that it means that you become worse against shops shops and then maybe other decks as well (laughs) the third concept is that dredge uses mental misstep um the fourth is that they believe that they'll create more deck building diversity which is interesting. We can talk about that. I mean, and then the f- there's a fifth concept, which is strength- strengthening interactive decks matchups against shops, presumably for the first reason, the second reason rather, and then mm-hmm. we can dredge, which is the third reason. Sorry, the the, the, <laughs> yeah. the yeah the third reason. So there's basically here four 
rationales. The whole litany yeah. of content here. It. I mean, why don't we just test? Do we agree with any of these? The first, the first one. I agree that there is an arms race because of misstep. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. And I all. I also completely agree. Yes, that's true. Um, the second is that those decks have to load up on misstep and therefore weaken themselves against shops. How valuable? How value valid do you think that argument is? <laughs> that one is a tricky one right now because I mean, I mean, and I literally mean like right now. But historically speaking, missteps were dead against shops when shops was an aggro deck yeah. and had all of one one mana spell in them. It was a hilarious, uh, serendipitous moment if you got the misstep, the soul ring in yes. game one. <laughs> um, and that has been a source of angst and, and controversy in the community for years now is the fact that if we didn't have to play all these dang missteps, we could be <laughs> loading up on cards that were better against shops. That's just been a common right. wisdom, right? That is a debatable topic that we don't actually have to debate at the moment I'm asking, for a weird reason. Okay. Uh, hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm getting there. Because we don't have to debate that right now, that is before 12 hours ago, because missteps have become good against shops yes. again, which is ironic. But the reason that they're good against shops is because shops have Karn and Forge and are loading up on keys and tops. Those reasons are now disappearing, yes. basically. Karn yes. decks will be disincentivized to load up on one drops now. So we've got all these conflicting and interacting systemic effects. I do think it's fair to say that misstep is going to become much less words against shops again because my predicted version has much fewer one drops in it. Yeah, it, so it's, a, it's been a bizarre cascade of interacting effects. I think you here. make a great point that what they said here was not technically true against the recent iteration of shops. So, oh yeah, it's, no, it's misstep weird. stays in against yeah. against the, the forge the, decks. I, but I never really found that overall argument pers uh, persuasive, and here's why: <laughs> it, the main did. reason I don't <laughs> think that this second argument about weakening themselves against shops is persuasive is because in the absence or in lieu of missteps, there's still going to be an a blue arms race. That the blue arms mm -hmm. race is a structural feature of vintage. That is to say that blue decks will main deck a certain proportion of, of cards that generally, but not always, are weak, if not useless, against shops. And an example of that is Pyroblast or Flusterstorm. Mm -hmm. And so those those cards are good against a wide range of matchups. They're good against combo decks. They're good against, you know, um, the blue, all the varieties of blue. And they're also good against a variety of other decks. But they tend to be bad against shops. And so I just don't think that, that I think there's a, there's a kind of a, a deck space that's typically dedicated for, for those shop, th those matchups that aren't usually geared and are often dead against shops, I don't think that restricting misstep actually will make blue decks all of a sudden so much better against shops. I just think that's a fallacy. I think that, um, you know, the, those it could make them if, if we go to more, like, spell pierces, but it might not. It could just mean more pyroblasts, more fluster storms, more misdirections, you know, things like that. Yeah. So I, I just... There is... Um before misstep, by the way, just one last I, point I, of it, there were a lot more misdirections yeah. seeing play before misstep was printed. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you completely in that sense. And I think that part of the language they've used here belies a lack of recognition of that likelihood or that possibility. And that is the fact that they're talking about, and this speaks to one of the points of this paragraph, they want to strengthen interactive decks matchups against shops, which is a callback to a prior statement that was Many decks are taxed deck slots that they must devote to fighting each other at the expense of weakening themselves against shops. So they've doubled up on this assumption that if you didn't have to play missteps, you would play cards that were good against shops instead. Right. And I think that's a fundamental that, that's fallacy. That's essentially what I'm saying. To your point. 
Yeah, that's that's the, yeah. you just summarized that, my my it, argument. That, yeah, yeah, that is not that is not a truism to say that if I didn't have to play these three missteps, I would be playing cards that were good against shops as a fundamental that's, flaw, and it belies a, a lack of appreciation for the fact that the vintage, like it or not, is still like sixty percent exactly. blue decks or more. It's a structural effect Sunday. of the format. It's not a it's not a, it's exactly. so much a design choice, which which they really yeah. missed here. The third point they make about dredge, weakening dredge, is is true, and we can't dispute that. The fourth is right. weird. Open up more deck building <laughs> diversity. I don't know what that means exactly. I think what it means is that they. Well, well, let me just ask you. What do you think they mean by that? Did you? I think they mean you can play more one cost spells. Okay, now, so you're saying within existing archetypes there will be more a diversity of cards that will be used within those decks. That's probably true. Yeah. But here's the weird thing about yeah. this. The most important reason to restrict misstep is not one of these four reasons. The most important reason to restrict misstep is that restricting misstep will create overall archetype diversity in the format. That there are decks like Dark Ritual decks that have been basically marginalized in this format because of misstep. That misstep makes some decks just unplayable. And, and also some cards and tactics just completely unplayable. So, I totally agree with them that it will open up more deck building diversity in that Spell Pierce and Thoughtseize and Duress and Dark Ritual should hopefully see more play. But I think they completely missed the boat that Misstep just marginalizes a bunch of archetypes, not just, not just, um, certain tactics. And I also think they should have acknowledged that restricting Misstep will, will introduce those cards that will also help combat Narset and Karn, like Spell Pierce and Thoughtseize. Yeah. Now, you might disagree yeah. on how much those cards are going to see play, but I, I think it could be quite significant. Um, so I, I, yeah. let's, let's save that for just a moment, though. The bottom line is, I thought there were a lot of reasons to restrict misstep. I had opposed restricting misstep in the past, but I think that the main reasons to restrict misstep were that all the kind of balance of factors post-War of the Spark, post-Modern Horizons flipped in the other direction. That misstep no yeah. longer created more interactivity, especially when combined with Narset, um, which misstep is really obnoxious. It's really hard. Part of Narset's counterplay proposition is misstep protecting it. And with misstep restricted, Narset's much, I think, more vulnerable. More vulnerable. She's going to get pyroblasted or bolted a lot more. Right. Or or just pithy needled. (laughs) Um, And so I think think that those all the collective reasons to restrict misstep just basically fell on the other side. Um, Also notable, it's the one card in this list that is restricted out of the bug deck. Uh, I don't know if <laughs> if this is really going to hurt Bug very much. I think it'll hurt Jeskai, the Xerox X, a lot more because Bug can really easily yeah. just slip in spell pierces and thought seizes. Um, but we'll see how that goes. So I, I just want to say, bottom line, I agree with the restriction of misstep, but I find it puzzling that they didn't mention that restri- they thought that restricting misstep would increase uh, overall format archetype diversity, not just because yeah. by weakening dredge, by weakening this taxing thing, I think you're. And, and also, the other thing, last point, misstep is so deeply embedded into the vintage fabric that it's hard to fully appreciate its effects. But misstep is the main reason that top deck tutors have gone away. So I fully expect, oh, yeah. I fully expect top deck tutors to come back. And I think mystical tutor, vampiric tutor are going to see a lot more play. So I'm interested to see what that happens. I think that's a good thing. That might be a slow burn. I think players might have too much residual dislike for them. That is, not immediately undone just because they feel like it's going to resolve more often. Well, if people load you know? up on duresses and or thought seizes and spell pierces, you're gonna you're gonna be really happy. You're playing mystical tutor 
Because you can put the best card, you know, Ancestral <laughs> on top and then untap and then play it with additional mana. I think, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, let, let's, let's get one, through one more paragraph before you well, talk about something. Did you have anything else to say about Misstep? Oh, uh, a misstep is a card that I can take or leave. I've I've said before when you've asked me about it that it was a complete design mistake, like mo- almost everything related to Phyrexian mana. And it never really bothered me because I felt like it was a kind of a deck building test in a lot of ways, and it was a good a gameplay test in a lot of ways. It's there's a lot of jokes about how uh, mindless it is to cast a misstep on your opponent's <laughs> one mana spell, but that's that's overselling it. There's a lot of times when misstepping the preordain is is not the right thing to do and you're meant to save it, right? It, there's some threat assessment involved in misstep when you get into matchups where there's a lot of targets. And I don't know. There's just I th- I feel like there's a little more play to the misstep arms race than people give it credit for. That's so fair. it never really bothered That's me fair. that much. I was always really intrigued by how uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist didn't play with um misstep for example. So there's a tension between how many Arcanists versus Snapcasters versus Young Pyromancers you yeah, play. Yeah, but I mean, Xerox decks have always loved cards like Misstep. They're just at their peak value in Xerox oh, because Xerox is all about not playing lands <laughs> and therefore playing, you know, Misstep <laughs> yeah. is like the perfect Xerox card, also quite good in Dredge. So I think this, I, I think yeah, I, I think I'm also weakening Xerox should also, I mean, Xerox has kind of been the, bo- uh, you know, with shops, the, the boogeyman of vintage for the last five years. And it seems like the capstone in restricting cards out of Xerox I don't think Preordain needs to be restricted, unlike Riche, but um, we'll see how this plays out. Yeah. All right. Let's lead. Let's read this next paragraph then. Since our philosophy is that vintage should be about playing with access to all of Magic, we periodically re-examine the restricted list for cards that can create new decks and play pattern, even if they come with some risk. Recently, many players have suggested Fast Bond as a card they could enjoy or would enjoy building with four copies of. Since most vintage decks rely heavily on artifact mana and play fewer lands, chances are that a deck built around Fast Bond would look quite different from anything in the current metagame. Other cards we've discussed unrestricting in the future are Windfall and Necropotence. Whew, that last sentence could be a whole artifact to itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start more yeah. at the top. So there are a handful of cards that have been discussed as possible unrestrictions. Um, and depending on who you ask, you might get a different answer to the question of what's the safest Naturally. unrestriction. Before this, my opinion was that Fast Bond or Windfall were the most safest unrestriction. Rich Shea yesterday said he thought the Demonic Consultation was. Uh, someone said, well, why wouldn't Imperial Seal be safer than Consult, which I agree with. I think Imperial Seal is safer than yep. Consult. Primarily because, of course, the main difference is Imperial Seal can get restricted cards, whereas Consult doesn't, oh, typically doesn't. Now that's where you're wrong, but, my friend. Consult, <laughs> well, I said typically, typically that, doesn't. That's a matter of perspective. I mean, consult, <laughs> consult is really unbelievable in like an Ad Nauseam deck because you can just, you know, you can get, boom, Dark Ritual or Ad Nauseam and combo yeah. out really fast. Um, I think, um, I think Fast Bond is is probably the safest unrestrict for two reasons. One is that um, it so so here's here's an interesting one. Let me let me just challenge what I mean by safe first, because safe is a really ambiguous term. So you can think of it like a matrix. There's two things. There's um, so imagine a matrix with four quadrants, right? And one would be uh, safe in terms of um, creating a, a dominant deck, or safe in terms of you know uh, so. So power level, like would it power or support a power? What is would it power up like a dominant deck or a tier one deck, right? Um, versus just will something see play at all, right? And so I think we can universally agree. So another axis would be like frequency of, of mm-hmm. appearances, right? As opposed to so you could have something that has a lot of appearances but is not 
is not powering up a very powerful deck or like a tier yeah. three deck, right? <laughs> but it just has a smattering of appearances across a bunch of decks. Or you could have something that appears basically in one deck and that's a tier yeah. one deck. So there's a spectrum, right? You can imagine something. What I'm trying to say is that by safe, you could mean one of two things. You could mean this card is going to not power up a powerful deck, or if it appears in a deck, it's going to be a bad deck. Or you could be saying that this is going to not see any play at all or very low play because it's really bad. And it's unclear like which one of those you're actually talking about. Those are different things. So I'll give you a concrete example. Suppose that Windfall, or hypothetical, suppose Windfall is unrestricted, like, and it, and it behaves like Yawgmoth's Bargain, that it appears in almost no top eights, or a very small handful of top eights, and the decks that, it, that appear in top eights don't, don't win tournaments, right? Mm-hmm. That is like one possibility, right? Or it could be something like, um, what's a card that's been unrestricted, Kevin, that, uh, that has seen play, but has never really been dominant since it's seen play? Let me see if I can find Thirst an example. For um, yeah, thir- Thirst for Knowledge is, is an extreme example. I guess, has it seen any uh, play at all? I don't know, scant, scant play. Yeah. Scant. <laughs> yeah, so those are, those are two examples. Like, Thirst for Knowledge is a card that's no play whatsoever versus a card that's seen a little bit of play and has appeared in some top eights. Right, so those are two different. Well, bar- extremes. bargain's a good example. Too. So, what, yeah, that's what I mean. Bargain, bargain versus yep. thirst. So, when you mean safe, what are we talking mm-hmm. about? By safe, I think Fastbond will actually appear in top eights, but I don't think it's going to appear. I think Fastbond, if you had unrestricted Fastbond and Windfall, I think Fastbond would see more top eight appearances mm-hmm. than Windfall, but Windfall would appear in more dangerous decks. That's what I'm trying to get at. Okay. That's what I'm trying to create these this spectrum of safe, right? And, and part of what I also mean by safe is that, you know, Windfall might have more turn one wins and therefore, like, violate some principle of counterplay, right? Whereas I think it would actually have less overall top eight appearances in Fastbond. So depending on which factor you weight, you know, um, overall appearances or the con- constitution or construction of the deck will determine what you mean by safe. But in my opinion, I think what matters more is overall um, power, not frequency of appearances. Do you land on that? Well, when you say matters more, what do you, land on what that do you mean debate? matters? In, in the definition of what we mean by safe, in, de- in defining safe, because safe, you know, like if I were to say, is Demonic Consultation, Windfall, Fastbond, or Imperial Seal the safest potential unrestriction? It depends on, I think, it, the answer to the question depends on what we mean by safe. Yeah. Because I think, ironically... Fastbond may have the most top eight appearances of any of those four unrestrictions, but I think demonic consultation is the most dangerous, right? So that's those are two very different things by what we mean by safe. To my eyes, creating a, a new kind of glass cannon, meaning a deck that could win on turn one but just isn't consistent enough to win tournaments, we have that already. Yes. There's I mean you could rattle off a bunch of decks like I could still play Dragon today. I could still play Belcher. Yeah. I could still I could still play Storm Ten if I wanted to. Like those decks already exist, and and people have their fun sometimes. But no, that's not a problem. So I don't put a lot of weight into. I I am not very concerned about the notion of creating another glass cannon deck that can't win a tournament. And so I'm trying to ask you, which is safer, or what is your opinion of safe? And I how think do you- the one that that. I think the one that is unlikely to do anything but could make a dominant deck is safer. Safer, okay. Yeah. And how, if you were to ask most vintage players, would they define safe in that way or in a different way? Gosh, I, I really don't know. Okay. It's not a conversation I've had very much. <laughs> well, I mean, so this is. I, I think I do think a lot of vintage players are are pretty risk averse when it comes to cards that have been restricted for a long time, like Consult, for example. Yeah. I do think 
my conversations has shown that they're pretty risk averse. Haven't had them in exactly but, these terms, but that's my summation. But the word risk merely reintroduces the original question into different guise, oh, I know. which is what is meant know, by safe, th- right? So I know, but those are people who are afraid so, of the 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 turn one win deck, not well, like oh that's going to be that's going to be forty percent of the metagame. No one has ever said something like that to me. They're all well, afraid. It's like geez, it's, you're just going to kill them on turn one, right? I think that that's what gets that's what gets at the question, right? So if you're trying to say yeah. the safest unrestriction is a card that's the least likely to appear in a top eight, well, then the answer yeah. to that question is probably windfall because there's yeah. just windfall is just not a good card, especially in the London Mulligan universe. I mean, maybe it gets better in that you can more consistently bend your opponent's hand, but there's so many more answers to to windfall, you know, with uh, force of negation and um. No, I, I don't know. I think Windfall is not a very good card in the current metagame, so it's probably mm-hmm. least l- less likely than Fastbond to actually appear in top eights. But mm-hmm. I think Fastbond is the serves another purpose. That's why I don't. I'm not sure that the right criteria is what's just the safest unrestricted. I think you need to run that. You need to run it through multiple criteria. One is what's the safest <laughs> unrestricted, but the other is what serves the purpose of promoting metagame diversity, right? Like what in that. That is a different question than safest and actually runs against safest because a card that could promote metagame diversity is not safe in the sense of least likely to see play because if something's least likely to see play, that means it's not actually going to serve the goal of promoting diversity because it's not going to actually appear anywhere, right? So I think Fastbond is the best unrestriction, but I'm not sure it's the safest unrestriction in terms of defining safe narrowly. That's what I was trying to get at. That's all. Okay. I got you. Yeah. And so I'm really I think, optimistic I also about what think, this is going to do. Yeah. I also think, in li- especially in light of this announcement, we need to add additional dimensions to that that matrix you're trying to set up because one of them has to speak to play pattern. Right. Because you're doing a lot of measuring in terms of metagames right. and, the, and top eight appearances, but how many players want to play against a four windfall deck? Right. Exactly. It can that's, create that gets, lousy play patterns comes too, to the, even if the deck's not any good. <laughs> yeah, it comes back to the counterplay question, which is why I was saying yeah. I was trying to create this like four quadrant box, yeah. right, where you've got two real quadrants that matter. One of the four quadrants, there are one quadrant. One of the squares is almost no chance of seeing a top eight appearance and almost no chance of actually creating a, a powerful deck. But then you also have this yeah. weird quadrant of you know nothing should be in that quadrant. By the way, what? Nothing should be in that quadrant. Or it should by the be unrestricted. If, if something does fall <laughs> it, it in that, should have been, it, it should have been unrestricted ex- long exactly, ago if it's in that quadrant. Exactly. I think Fastbond yeah. falls into the quadrant of, well, actually, I do think Windfall probably falls into that quadrant. It's possible Windfall falls into the quadrant of low likelihood of top eight appearances, but potentially could make a, a powerful non interactive yeah. deck. So it could fall in that That's quadrant. That's where Windfall lives. Yep. And then Fastbond, I think, falls into the other quadrant, the opposite quadrant, which is the quadrant that is, um, very likely to appear in top eights because it's going to appear in lands and ren decks and things like that, but very unlikely to, you know, violate principles of either dominance, game balance, or counterplay. And then there's that fourth quadrant, which is, you know, that's the quadrant where cards should probably never be unrestricted, right? <laughs> Agree. So yeah. So that's that's all I was trying to get at. And so I'm well, sorry fine. for our listeners so, if that was co- difficult to follow. Hopefully by the end you got it. <laughs> So, with respect to fast bond, right? They start the topic sentence of this is about the philosophy of vintage being you should have access to all of your magic cards. Basically, all of magic is what they say, which is a, a recapitulation of you should of we want vintage to be the format where you can play with your mocks and in, right from in, ahead, in most earlier. amount of cards that we want to minimize the size of restricted list. Right? Yeah, that's what they're saying. They're saying um, we want to minimize the, the size of the restricted yeah. list. 
that that having a smaller restricted list is in and of itself a goal yes. of the restricted yes. list. Yeah. Uh, they re- periodically re-examine the cards. Then they said that players have suggested Fast Bond as they would, something they would enjoy building with, which is you know an interesting perspective. It reiterates the community uh, engagement in this whole decision-making process. True. And then they make an interesting assertion, which I don't actually think holds much water. They say that, that most vintage decks rely heavily on artifact mana. That's not true. Simply untrue. <laughs> but it's a, it's a well, common I guess it depends on what the they format. mean by most. I mean, the fifty-one percent of the decks rely heavily on artifact mana. I don't know. Bug, you know, bug and just guy typically use on color, which is you know having four mana sources in your deck artifact. does no, in no way constitute a heavy reliance okay. on it. Okay. <laughs> and dredge uses none, right? Yeah. Um. Anyway, the, that's not really the point. <laughs> that I think that's arguable and in, in, in my opinion incorrect, but not really the point. The real point is, um. Chances are that a deck built around Fast Bond would look quite different from anything in the current metagame. Now, I think that's really interesting to cite as a goal for this announcement when it really just speaks to uh, archetype diversity. Yes, which they haven't explicitly mentioned here, but is actually the main thing they mentioned on their ban and restricted list page. (laughs) Yeah, but I also think that they, they picked a really funny, and by funny I mean mostly wrong, way of framing it. Yes. By talking about how <laughs> if you ha- if you had a four fast bond deck, it inherently wouldn't rely on artifact mana, <laughs> yeah, and so inherently weird. would look different than other decks in the format. I just don't get that. Yeah, what, why why would you why would you frame that like that and be wrong about it and and use that as your tenant here? You know, they, your tent pole. They could have just. I think what you're getting at is what if they had just said, "We believe that unrestricting fast bond will promote archetype diversity by empowering <laughs> decks that currently don't see play or are marginalized or something like that." Right. Exactly. Yeah. Instead, they had to put it, try to put it in all these specific terms yeah. about how we get our mana and yeah. how decks look. And I think and they were conf- basically making these sweeping over generalizations that aren't right. I think they were conflating two points. I think they were trying to reach the point about promoting archetype diversity, which they do in mm-hmm. a really odd, indirect way. But I also mm-hmm. think they were trying to assuage concerns that Fastbond is going to be broken. And I think the point is well taken that Fastbond is not likely to be in a storm combo deck. Because those mm-hmm. decks rely heavily on artifact acceleration. So where fast sure, bonds sure. won't appear is in a lands deck, in a ren deck, maybe in a mid-range rug deck. I don't know. Those maybe like a, I, I certainly think it'll appear like we'll see some dark depths combo decks, you know, coming out mm-hmm. of this. They're in lands decks. I think th- those points are really well taken, but I think that they tried to, the way that they tried to reach that point, they, they basically conflated two concepts. They're talking, they're saying, we believe fast bond is going to promote archetype diversity. Um, and also kind of like design diversity, right? But yeah, also, something so, like that. But also, they're trying to say that you know that th- this isn't going to slot into like the powerful decks that exist right now in some sort of weird way to assuage concerns. I think they could have just been more yeah. direct on both points instead of trying to conflate them. Yeah, I agree completely. I think there's there's valid material here to be had as their goals, but they went about it in a really bizarre way. And it's also <laughs> weird that they're not using the touchstones that they use in their other announcements. Like, they never discuss, they never use the word diversity. Like, they've got it here quite different, right? They, yeah. they use deck-building diversity, but they never talk about overall deck or archetype diversity like they do in their official announcement. And they keep talking about interactivity instead of counterplay. So it's weird mm. that Ian Duke is so careful in the last three years of announcements, and then like jettisons their frames and underlying principles for these alternative language that actually doesn't serve their purposes very well, right? It actually makes it more awkward in terms of phrasing and locution and articulation. Yep. 
And I also would really, really, really have enjoyed to see some acknowledgement of the fact that they just restricted Fastbond's primary predator, which <laughs> increases, in my opinion, the risk of this card greatly along the metrics that you were outlining yes, earlier. Yes, it does. I, I still Fastbond thought- is far more likely to create a dangerous combo deck now that you can only <laughs> play one misstep. I do think, though, that the counter-argument to that, which I put in my article, is that both the force of negation and force of vigor are both now in the format. So I actually think yeah. it's it's actually safer now than it was a year ago with four misstep because of these two answers. You have two more answers to offset misstep. Now, you you might yeah. say that misstep sees more play overall than those replacement cards, but we don't know that. Like, we don't know how much well, play negation and vigor are going to play overall. And I think force of negation, a force of vigor is pretty ubiquitous at this point. Um, it is. So, but not across all decks. No, not as many decks can play it. And I think it's, I think it's pretty speculative on your part to say that force of negation plus vigor could fill that gap. Yeah. I mean, plus vigor. It is I technically both, true. Both. I know. Yeah. I know. But it's technically true. Well, a bit, but I mean, just guy doesn't get any help from force of vigor. No. But, um, it is speculative. It's technically it possible, is speculative. But I think it's pretty spurious to think that there's going to be an equivalent amount of those things as to but, what there was misstep. But, no, I think, I don't know if it's spurious. I think it's speculative. I agree with your first point. But here's what I would say. I think it's both. Well, here's what I would say. <laughs> I would say that if Fastbond were to become a or problem or verge on being a problem, those tools are in the card pool to help combat it. That's what I would say. Uh, that is undeniably true. And I agree that, uh, the, the format could probably adapt if so, fast bond became an so issue. So my like point that. is that the, the format has more tools now to adapt to a turn one fast bond than it did a year ago. Whether those will see more play, I think the format is better equipped to handle it. That's how I would that's how I would frame it. Okay. That that's that's, that's reasonable. Yeah, that's hard to, that's harder to dispute. <laughs> so it just just for a bit of reference, I mean I'm looking at um MTG Goldfish, which we don't talk about very much on this show. And they have a great little feature called format staples. If you've never been out there, it's really kind of cute. And I'm not trying to be dismissive. It's a cool feature. It's it's reasonable. Point is, they have charts for the most commonly played cards across very different various different formats and categories. The most commonly played cards overall in vintage start with Force of Will in 73% of decks and Mental Misstep yep. in 71% of decks. Now, there's a huge drop-off. The third most played card is only in 57% of decks, and it drops precipitously from there. The like the seventh most played card is down to 29%. Force of Vigor, though, has a spike in ninth place that it is played in 50% of decks today. Yep. Now, that is buoyed by the dramatic success of Bug recently. My instincts are that Force of Vigor is not a 50% card in the format long term. But the difference between 50% and 71% is sizable. Sizable, right? Oh, yeah. It would take a major upswing in the number of um, Force of Negations to counteract that. Because I think Force of Vigor has probably hit its ceiling. It can't be in much more than 50% of decks, realistically. That's that's true. Right? Yeah. And Force of Negation would have to basically appear on the scene. It's not even in the top 50 right now. I I certainly... We haven't got... We've only been analyzing the announcement. We haven't talked about effects. And Mm -hmm. I I do... I want to finish our analysis of the announcement, and then we can talk about effects. But I... You're right. But I... Okay. I'll hold my commentary on that. Then until we get to the end, <laughs> you're you're right. I, I have I've skipped some things. We so we haven't really touched on this other dis, other cards we've discussed. Thing is windfall and necropotence. Yeah. Um. Of all the things you've been discussing, and which I mostly agree with, necropotence is not anywhere near the top of that list. No, I for, I for agree. Cards. I agree. I would unrestrict a load of cards probably before necropotence. Although I do think it's an interesting <laughs> card to discuss as a possible unrestrict because it it has some systemic elements in terms of its reliance on dark ritual. Et exactly. 
I think it's another card, just like Fast Bond, where they just restricted one of its primary yes. predators. Yes, they did. <laughs> which is it's just funny to think. Um, yeah, I'm with you. There's probably six to ten cards I would unrestrict before Necropotent. Um, okay, so this last sentence. We're very interested... Uh, paragraph sorry we're very interested in what the vintage community thinks on these changes and whether further steps are needed there will be one more opportunity to change the BNR list before eternal weekend north america and we're willing to do so so please continue to make yourself heard in the same ways you have been so what i think is so weird about this is that the next announcement is october 7th and let's say they have to lock it in by mid-september that doesn't really give us much time to evaluate what's happened the full effects (laughs) absolutely so i don't really know what kind of feedback they're going to look for but I like what they did. He- I-, I like most of what they did here. I think this is going to take a long time to play out, and I would, I-, I, unless you're committed to seeing another set of restrictions right now, based upon what you've seen, and you're firm mm-hmm. in that, I just don't see how you can make a reasonable judgment about how the metagame is going to be affected by this in the time they need, in advance of the time they need to make the- those decisions before Eternal Weekend. Yeah. Yeah, to me, this was their last true. reasonable opportunity, you know, to kind of really, really reshape things. Um, yeah. I, I want to say, make you. a comment about this. I'm a little nervous about, you know, there's like three or four po- places in this announcement where they say, we want player feedback, blah, blah, blah. Yep. The management of the ban and restricted list is a policy matter. And there are expert managers hired to manage it. And it's not a democracy. It's not a democratic thing. And I'm a little nervous. No, and that, there's a reason for that, right? I mean, yeah. if this was a, just a democracy, if the management of the vintage ban and restricted list was a democratic instrument, then you wouldn't need a format manager. All you would need is a coordinator to like set up the polls and allow the community to vote, right? You would just, you could just do it in a, in a up and down vote or some kind of structured rank choice voting system. It's not. Sure. It's, it's in, it's clearly not set up that way. So, and there are reason, good reasons for that, right? Because a majority of players might dislike something that is actually good for the format. But, you know, a, the problem with majoritarianism is that, especially in, the, in something like this, is that they could squeeze out competitors, right? The majority could be used to attack competitors and, and, and therefore like continue to boost their dominance. Right. And so that's a fundamental problem in democracy, which is why there are rules to protect minority interests and minority rights. And that is also why this is not subject to up or down democratic voting. And I'm really mm-hmm. concerned that he is, Ian Duke is in, inviting too much, you know, vintage, like to what extent should the vintage community influence the banned and restricted lists? I think it should have a voice, but I don't think it should have a say. And those are two different things. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, do you have any concerns about that as well, or do you just agree with what I said? We, you and I have been struggling as analytical people in recent history to reconcile the challenge that you're alluding to. The challenge of the fact that we've had some established metrics for a long time, and they've served us pretty well for how we evaluate this kind of decision-making. And those metrics have been really stressed to the point of failure in some cases to describe the, the state of the format right now. Yeah. and. I, in general, I agree with your concerns. The trick is the alternatives are in some ways equally or more unreasonable. Which is what? <laughs> Which is asking Wizards of the Coast, the, the DCI, R&D, some, some intersection of those organizations to have a real strong understanding of vintage and to manage it with a, well, a firm hand. But here's the, th- here, I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, if you're, if you're setting up a dualist convocation that is supposed to manage formats, that's your expertise. That is your wheelhouse. 
it's like um, in anything, right? I mean, you don't <laughs> in law, in 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 science, in uh, business, in any field of endeavor. You have experts that you hire to bring in, you know, in engineering to assess matters and provide recommendations, and that becomes their yeah, expertise. I mean, you that's undisputable. Like, we don't we don't vote we don't vote on the appointment of the you know the Federal Reserve Board Chairman. There's an appointment, and usually there's an article in the New York <laughs> Times this weekend about how. Uh, for what? many many years, the Federal Reserve Board Chairman were was lawyers, and then became economists with Paul Volcker. I, I really want to interrupt. Sorry, I'm, you're 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 arguing a point that I'm not trying to make. It sounds like you're arguing in favor of experts, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, but what the trick but what is, you said is you said that well, alternative is unreasonable with experts. Yes, and that let me let me answer that okay. because. The key thing in your assessment just then was not the presence of experts. It's the paying them part. <laughs> what do you mean? We, it is unreasonable for you and I to expect wizards to pay a person to be an expert in it. It is not worth it no. to them from a dollars and cents. No, standpoint. I disagree. I mean, if you want to create a format, Ian Duke and, and the people who are on the DCI are that expert. And they do look, Ian, the, the principles of, of managing the format. So there's there's two steps here. The first is what are the criteria and principles by which you manage the format. The second is then investigating the details of the format such that you can apply those principles. And I think that first of all, like it's clear that Ian Duke has a strong handle on principles. He's talked about modern, standard, vintage, legacy over the last three four years that he's been running. He's been at the helm, right? And he's articulated principles that are are presumably cross cutting across formats. The second mm-hmm. step is then applying those principles to vintage. I think I don't think it should be beyond their capacity in their fo- their job descriptions to to be able to look <laughs> into the format enough to make those determinations. Now, should they solicit community feedback to help them? I have no objection to that. But what I do have an objection to is opening it so wide that it makes it seem like community feedback is actually driving this. And that's that's the problem because they have back-end tools for Magic Online mm-hmm. where they can look at win rates. They can look at top eight diversity. They can look at intern match win rates and balance. They could probably even look at polarity. Um, and they probably can also look at interactivity in counterplay. They can observe games. Now, obviously, everything I mentioned up to that last one is much more, uh, is, is much more efficient to do, right? You can just probably drum up some spreadsheets and learn everything except for the latter. So for the latter, they probably should be soliciting feedback, right? Or reaching out to experts. But I disagree that the other ones can't be done by someone. I, I assume that in his appointment, in his job card, this is part of his job. I think you're missing something fundamental here. <laughs> Are you saying that Ian is that expert? What I'm saying is that he is the expert in terms, like an economist running the Federal Reserve. They can what what the economists can do, and that's why we now have economists running it instead of lawyers, right? Is that they can understand what the data is telling them. They can get the data, and they have a wide enough set of principles from managing economies, you know, at different levels over time that they can say this behavior is suggest is indicative of something that we need to address, and therefore they can apply those principles to figure out a that there is a need for an inter- intervention, and b to evaluate what that intervention should be. Well, I I don't know if you just answered my question or not. I think you did, but the, it doesn't matter regardless of whether or not you have you know believe one way or the other. An expert in vintage uh, managing the format would not make this many mistakes on a regular basis. Yeah, I, what I'm saying, I think we're talking about something slightly different. You're talking about an expert in vintage. What I'm saying is an expert yeah. in format management. And that's what I think the expertise uh, is. 
in, in terms okay, of... Okay, well... And, and so what I think is... I mean, apparently you need to be specifically expert in it for vintage in order to get it well, right. Well, it's so. like, again, you know, a macroeconomist isn't necessarily a labor economist, right? And so a macroeconomist who's running the Fed will need to be expert in, like, what are the effects of these policy levers? And they can then try and project that <laughs> okay. into into the you know the environment that they're in and those are different environments right just like standard I, I get standard you're, is a different you're, you're trying to explain a thing to me that is not helpful well, i'm trying like, to create i get I'm it trying there, to create there's, there's there's broad expertise in specific i get it the point is is we're, we're dealing with mistakes here on a repeated basis in our particular field i agree if you're telling me that there's they should have experts then my answer is okay you've apparently tried to get true experts you need a different kind of expert some additional expertise is what's needed well i don't know that they need format expertise in order to to pull the policy levers. I think they need to have expertise in what are the indicia. They need to have expertise sufficient to, to, to be able to see what are signs of health of a healthy and unhealthy format. That's what they need to have. They need to have more expertise than they have with respect to vintage than they currently have. I mean, I, 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 mean would, I would never disagree with that. I think that more, always I mean, more expertise it's, is it's, better than, than less. But I'm not talking about it as a philosophical standpoint that more expertise is better. I'm talking about we need to get past a certain threshold of mistake making from a format management standpoint. We're still in the the realm of it's being mismanaged and have been for a while. I disagree with that. I really do. I think that... Well, I I think we we don't need any more evidence than the multiple mistakes we've pointed to at in just this announcement. Yeah, I think there are... They were considering sphere resistance for restricting in (laughs) shops. They're considering unrestricting necropotence. Yeah. These are unacceptable mistakes from a format management standpoint. It's not like they could be doing slightly better. It's this is unacceptable. You should not be conceiving considering these things. Well, I think the true judge of the... uh, So, yes, you can evaluate the announcement and the explanation and the mistakes or errors or lapses of of reason in in that is 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 one way to evaluate the management of the format yeah. but i think the more important way to evaluate is what is the quality of the ultimate decision making they're made so if the you know to just extend my analogy if the if mm-hmm. the federal reserve chairman decides to vote to increase the you know the the, the interest rates if they decide to increase the federal you know reserve borrowing rate if the reasoning is bad but the decision is or the presented reasoning is bad but the but the ultimate decision is good then i don't I don't know. It's hard for me to d- disagree with the decision. I think the decisions... Except the decisions have been bad consistently for years now. These are the people who restricted Chalice before Lodestone Golem yeah. and who restricted Gush and Probe before Mentor and who have now restricted Fair. Misstep and Troll at the same time out of an, a dredge archetype <laughs> that wasn't doing anything. I mean, I disagree like, with that, but I, I think overall the decisions here are good. I mean, I like I like well, three of the five decisions they made. <laughs> that is a terrible terrible ratio that has huge systemic impact <laughs> i can't believe you're giving them credit for three out of five when you're espousing get... the value of decision making i mean if you know i mean that's basically the rate with which i agree with obama you know i mean it's like <laughs> i i that's neither here nor there that doesn't matter but the, the, point point I'm, is, the point i'm making i want to see a... i want to see a rate closer to 100 percent than what did you just cite 60 percent. yeah i mean i i think that that's 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 laudable um, that's laudable. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think that it would be better to have this be more refined, and and these missteps are are not great. But in, in terms of any policymaker, there's usually going to be things you agree with and things you disagree with. You know, I might yeah. I might have agreed with Barack Obama on his healthcare plan, but disagree with him in terms of you know how they treated Edward Snowden. But that doesn't mean that I didn't think you know he's not doing he what didn't do a good job as president. And similarly, I think Ian Duke is doing a good job in his role here. I don't agree with everything he's doing. I don't agree with everything in the explanation, but I think overall he's doing a better job, frankly, than some of the other people who served in this position. 
Well, there, there are certainly good things here. My point was not that this is all devoid of utility and that they shouldn't have done anything. Um, but I do think there are some problematic issues here that Grave Troll is a symbol of at this point, right? Yeah. Grave Troll is a symbol of the, the tendency to to reach the wrong conclusion with whatever methods they're using of late. That's fair. But Let's talk Vin- about effects, though. Let's make some predictions on how we think this is going to all shake out. There's a lot here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know how you want to well, structure first- it. You've already made multiple allusions to what cards you think are, so, are newly so playable. So I, I do think, I think Missteps Restriction will open up some space for, first and foremost, I think it's going to create, I think, number one, we're going to see the top deck tutors be more widely played. They're going to just, they just have to appear more. Now, it might be a slow burn, like you said, but I think we're going to see more Vampiric Tutor and more Mystical Tutor in the format, which I think is exciting. Mm-hmm. Number two, I think we're going to see, um, I think we're going to see some more pitch magic counterspells fill some of the gap for Misstep, which, by the way, gets to the point you were making, a, we were making about criticizing that that second point in the misstep paragraph. I think basically the cards that most obviously will fill the gap will probably be, let's just start with the free ones. There's only three other ones that really are playable in the format, which are uh, Force of Negation, Mindbreak Trap, and Misdirection. I think we're going to, all three of those should see a bit more play. I think Misdirection is probably going to see more play in the long run if, if, if Ancestral Recall sees a lot more play, but it's probably going to see very little uptick in the short run. I think Force of Negation is probably going to see a little bit more play in the short run. I think we're going to see a, a, a like a non-trivial increase in both Spell Pierce and Thought Seize off the bat, and I also think we're going to see some more Dark Ritual decks um, come back into the into the format. I also think we're going to see some interesting Fast Bond decks. The mid-range Bug decks, there were two of the uh, Rug decks, there were two of them with Ren in the July Top 8s. I fully expect to see... It would be interesting to see, for example, if some Fast Bond decks emerge with... Uh, what's the um, the green Crucible creature? Excavator, uh, yeah. Ramunap, Excavator. I think we're, it would be really cool to see if like Fastbond is used with Excavator, but I think just in general we're going to see lands appear with with that, and I hope I think we're going to see a lands deck with Fastbond, which I think will be will be cool. Um, but I also hope we can see some like Excavator shenanigans with Fastbond. What do you think about that? Um, lot, you said a lot of things there. I think there's one more playable pitch uh, counter, and that is Dazed. Oh, good point. Yeah. Uh, and in general, I think. You're right that there will probably be an uptick in in some combination of, of all of those to to fill the gap. the The presence of fast bond makes days a really interesting animal because depending on how omnipresent fast bond truly is, because it if you have your own fast bond, it really lowers the cost of your own dazes. The two of them play incredibly well together, right? Yeah, you just get the it's almost no. You, it's like paying one life for your for your days instead of picking up a land. However, if your opponent has fast bond, it also makes your days a lot less good. <laughs> so if you're, if the, the fast bond decks are a narrow part of the metagame, days could be great, you know, in, in general. If they're not, days may just kind of fall back the way, you know, be, be suppressed the way it usually is. If we're paying mana for our spells more so often that now that the misstep is restricted, I think days just fundamentally gets better. Uh, I think spell pierce has already been on the rise as a response to the now restricted Forge and Karn. So it'll be interesting to see how Spell Pierce repositions itself when the things it was really targeted against mostly are no longer there. Yeah. I expect that workshops will fill the six plus gaps in their archetype with a whole bunch of creatures again. Right. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like you're you're gonna you're gonna see Ravager, Ballista, Revoker, Steel Overseer again. Ravager shops will come back for sure. That's gonna come yeah. back. Work, workshop aggro I think should surge to a non trivial part of the metagame again. Yeah. I think we're going to see and, 
I think we're going to... Unfortunately, s- that makes uh, Spell Pierce a lot more of a liability. Yeah, that's true. You, you definitely don't want Spell Pierce against Workshop Aggro. So Workshop... And... Go ahead. So there's all, uh, just more of the systemic effects, that's all. Go yeah, ahead. No, just Workshop Aggro peaked in January and February. Um, you know, we saw a lot of, a lot of Workshop Aggro. Um, and I think we're going to see... In fact, it peaked in, in February particularly. I think we're going to see a lot more workshop aggro again it's going to be almost entirely workshop aggro of course um i think it's probably i don't know what do you think maybe like 20 percent of the metagame should be workshop aggro going forward i don't it's hard to say because force of vigor is so good against it (laughs) um and collector oof is still a really big beating against those decks that are based around creature activated ability i think bug is (laughs) i'm a little nervous that bug is going to be too good honestly because bug well loses the relatively speaking probably the least with this kind of scattershop yeah. approach right i mean it it in, you've taken away three of its cards but you've given it you've weakened a lot of its enemies on mm-hmm. also you've weakened a lot of its prey which maybe yep. doesn't help it but you've yep. given you the restriction of misstep gives bug the best tools between spell pierce and thoughtsies um you know i suppose the ritual decks get rituals well but bug gets so many nice tools with the restriction of misstep, not to mention it doesn't have to worry about its deathrite shaman being misstepped, which it has perennially <laughs> had to worry about. This belies one of the problems with the approach that we are facing here. Strongly influenced by community feedback, strongly influenced by play patterns, etc. Unfortunately, it is playing the choices that have been made here are playing right into a potential risk for a lopsided metagame. With what bug just at the top dominating? With, yeah. I mean, this forty yeah, percent is absurd. Forty-seven percent is absurd, yeah. and I don't. It, go ahead. It, it could be that it's just too hard for Jess Guy because a lot of people be- believe, and I think rightly so, that Jess Guy is a natural predator for Bug. Yes, there's a reason Jess Guy has been depressed. It's because it has a just no way to beat <laughs> Dredge. Uh, Dredge, <laughs> and it, it's really weak against the shop decks, the combo shop decks. Yeah. Well, Jess Guy doesn't exactly get a lot better against Workshop Aggro. Especially when you've been cutting Dax for Narsets all day, yeah. which makes you terrible in that yeah. matchup, even more so. Narset, at least Narset did something against Mystic Forge. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know, I mean, I don't think you could just start playing Jeskai and say, finally, all my bad matchups are out of the way. It's not like that. Agreed. <laughs> it's not like that at all. You're not a steamroller against anything anymore. No, Jeskai is, and- seems really hard. I mean, Workshop Aggro is, I think, maybe worse for Jeskai than the Karn decks. Yes, it can be. And you're inherently weaker because of this love for love affair with Narset lately. So what um, what could rebalance Bug? Like what is good? Like that's the problem is that Bug is so diffuse. I mean, its anchor is basically Deathrite Shaman, but yep. restricting that. And you just took one of Deathrite Shaman's primary. Yeah. Well, part of the answer is uh, simply removal. Lightning yeah. Bolt is good against most yes. of what Bug's doing. It's good against. It's a. It's an answer to Deathrite. It kills a Leovold. Yeah, they get a card. It's just really bad against. Um, uh, Tarmogoyf, right? Yeah. Swords to Plowshares God, is, is really back. good against Bug. Yeah. yeah. Swords to Plowshares is a good, strong, universal answer. And with missteps, you know, out of the way for the most part, it's super hard for them to answer. So the problem is, is that you you can't beat Dredge with Jeskai basically at all. If you could find a home for a bunch of Swords to Plowshares that had a plan against Dredge, all right, then we might be talking. Maybe though, this but, maybe um, the restriction of um. Look, I, I do think that 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 <laughs> this is where things get tricky. Pithy Needle, Graft Digger's Cage, these cards are going to be harder for Dredge to stop. Um, and it's also going to be harder for Dredge to use Force of Vigor. So it'll give you more, the, the yep. Jeskai player more time to protect those artifacts. 
but yep. I don't know how, how much time and how much it will really make a difference. It's worth noting that Hogak already fights Kate. Like, Cage keeps getting yeah. worse and worse as they print these new interactive cards and new ways to use the graveyard. Hogak is a great way to fight Cage. The Pithy Needle seems so, better with the restriction of, because now if you're just using draw step dredging, then you, you know, if you don't have Stinkweed Imp, you're talking about a really anemic dredge per turn. That's true. That's a very good point. So I, I am having a hard time with predictions right now. The only thing I'm super confident in is that really workshops <laughs> is well, bugs still really good, and that workshops is going to be Ravager Aggro again for now. Yeah, those those are two um, things. I think those are the two things we can set in stone. Ravager Aggro yeah, is going to be and, a non-trivial, a big, a double-digit percent of the metagame, and Bug is going to be the presumptive best blue deck. Um, and I'm super confident that Fast Bond is going to get a bunch of attention. Right? Yes. People are going to try all manner of fast bond decks from starting with lands, which is a pretty established shell at this point, to combo decks, right? More Xuronorb Crucible type combo decks to finding more creative ways to bounce your lands like Gush, you know, using different kinds of spells. I just think there's going to be a lot of attention. Survival should have a little bit more space and maneuverable room because if, if these restrictions really hamper Dredge, and that's yet to be seen, it's clear that these restrictions do not hamper survival. And if Workshop Aggro gets better, I think Survival gets a little bit more space. So, he, so let me give you a range. Here's the ideal. The ideal case is, is the following. The ideal case yeah. is we get the best, most diverse metagame we've had in years. And what that will look like is this. Bug, <laughs> Bug, um, Workshop Aggro at the top, the tier one decks, and then Jeskai, Dark Ritual combo, um, a lands deck, maybe it's a Ren deck or just a, a, a lands combo deck, um, Dredge, and um let's see so that's that's six decks right um those are basically all like really viable decks right and mm. and maybe like some Eld- a white eldrazi deck comes out of the ashes at the other end maybe too i don't know we'll see <laughs> like that's and then we get a smattering of you know like the grixis decks the landstill decks the outcome out- oh sorry outcome outcome is going to be a big player i think i think outcome is it's hard to know exactly but i think outcome is going to be a non-trivial part of the metagame so that's the ideal case right that all those things occur the worst case scenario is that this really changes not doesn't change very much it cripples dredge it um severely you know workshop aggro replaces the karn mystic forge decks but bug just has a monopoly over the metagame that's either basically on par with what it is now or maybe a little worse i think that's the spectrum of possibilities and there's it's going to be something in between right yeah the part of the this underlies one of the risks of um, acting so strongly on community feedback is that there's no guarantee that the metagame that we get next is one that people like exactly people could still complain be like oh god i don't like you know, I don't like PO. It's so unfun. I mean, I just don't think there's a lot of space for Oath to maneuver in this metagame with Force of Vigor. Um, and I, I think no, that that Collector's Oath, like you said, will will put a ceiling on Workshop Aggro with Force of Vigor and really yeah. well-positioned Bug. And I just don't know if there's a way to get around Bug. I mean, I think, like, it's just got too many tools. You know, like, the lands deck isn't probably going to be able to trump Bug. Um, the works the maybe the storm deck could become a predator maybe that's that's the angle of attack that if we get but if, if a storm yeah. deck becomes a, a combo big player a combo deck that's not reliant on drawing as much and not not reliant on Leo. artifacts either that's the key right yeah that, that, yeah. that does a ritual based deck that can just yogmoth's will yes or dps somehow yeah that's that's the other possibility that's that's a that would be 
good. I also think it would be good if like a Grixis style multicolor control deck that uses top deck tutors, tinker, that sort of thing. I think there's space in the current metagame for that with these restrictions. Yeah. I think if that were to reemerge, that would be good. So there's like a really good case scenario in which like all these good things happen. And there's a bad case scenario where basically almost nothing changes or the things that change either make the format worse or that, you know, in terms of the existing format, iterate into a worse version or that the new decks that come in exacerbate the fundamental complaints around counterplay and interactivity that players already have because like PO yeah. becomes better or like the storm combo deck becomes better and people just whine. <laughs> but uh, I don't, I don't know. I think that <laughs> I'm a little optimistic. I think that the restriction of misstep is so profound and so difficult to, to sort of forecast with precision. I think there are direct effects and indirect effects and tertiary effects. And I think that it's mm-hmm. going to really have a knock on ripple effect. So it's really hard to, to know. I think it's going to make Narset less obnoxious. Um, so I'm, I'm actually hopeful. I don't know. I don't know that it's actually going. I think here's what I, I believe. I think that the chances that it makes a more diverse format are greater than it makes a more interactive format. I'm not sure that this format is going to be more interactive in terms of counterplay, but I do think, you know, because the, the, the decks that replace the ones that are going to be marginalized by these restrictions could be just as non-interactive, like a PO and ritual combo surge. But I do think we're going to see a more diverse overall metagame. What do you think? Well, I agree with you that the systemic effects are just too hard to predict. Um, I Every deck has to adapt. There's no deck that comes out of this unscathed, and the interactions of how they select to adapt at the start will be entirely speculative, right? The The easiest thing to predict is Bug can just swap in some different counter spells like Spell Pierces for its missteps and go about its business for the moment, being a very well-rounded deck, and it will probably still succeed. There's just no two ways about it. Bug has built-in resilience to this kind of change because it has Vindicate at two mana and because it has a release valve in, in six to eight pitch magic and it has consistent mana. So Bug's not going to go anywhere. It's going to have to adapt to learn again how to play against Workshop Aggro, but that's not a bad matchup. Right. That's a great matchup. I mean, remember how we used to talk about Bug as the um, as the, the Workshop Aggro killer, yep. right? Back in the, the, the snuff out days. <laughs> And now you've got Force of Vigor and, and Collector if you just you've gained ground in that matchup. So to me, the big question mark is, what's the bug predator? It can't be artifact bait, really, unless your artifact is indestructible and doesn't have any activated abilities. So if your artifact is Blightsteel Colossus, then maybe you've got a chance. But otherwise, the best way to beat bug is to overpower them. It's just really hard to overpower them when Null Rod in play and Force of Vigor in hand and Vintage. Yeah. And so... I do think people will look at Jeskai, and I do think people will look at Fast Bond, and I think it's going to take a while before we sort it out. <laughs> um, the the fact that I think that Dreadhorde Arcanist can get a little bit better. Dreadhorde Ar- Arcanist happens to be pretty good against shops, which is nice. And it can be, you can build an Arcanist deck that's actually decent against Bug. It's just, it's, a, it's delicate. The lack of missteps helps you and hurts you. It fl- flows both ways. But the fact, the fact that Arcanist wants to cast one mana spells means that it's inherently benefiting from a reduced amount of misstep. I think that's undeniable. So yes, I do right. think Arcanist is, is a winner here. It's all, we're not going to see the end of misstep, your misstep, misstep, your misstep. Because <laughs> no, no, not as long as, um, snap exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to be looking at fast bond. I'm going to be looking at Arcanist. I'm going to be expecting to face against uh, you know, Arcbond Ravager a fair bit. I'm going to be expecting to face against Deathrite Shaman a fair bit. I think 
the deck that could catch people unawares is a combo deck that is good against a, a collector's oof, as you said. And and because I think it's almost a it's almost a, tr- a tautology to say that people are going to have fewer counter spells now because well, not everyone's going to take three missteps out of their deck and add three counter spells every time. I don't think that they're going to add two counter spells and a thought seize or two counter spells and a lightning bolt. You know, like I think there's going to be an overall reduction in counter magic in totality. I will a, a, a small amount. Yeah, I think we're gonna. I don't. I would say that might be true, but I don't think we're gonna see an overall reduction in disruptiveness. I think because discard can replace some of that. That's that's what I'm getting at, though. Is the kind of disruptiveness that people would replace a misstep with is the kind of stuff that's bad against DPS in general. Yeah, on, on a lot of in a lot of cases. As soon as you put one lightning bolt in where that fourth misstep was, you know, you're getting worse against DPS. So. I'm not saying it's 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 the new best deck in the format. I'm just saying it's a way to fight the tendencies that people are going to be uh, going down. Fair enough. Yeah. I think you're going to see a lot more workshop aggro with spatial contortion <laughs> because that's what the, the Forge decks figured out how to do against O. And spatial contortion, oh, by the way, happens to be pretty good against a, a Lee of old, too. No, that's interesting. That's you. You got some. You drilled down a little bit there. So we'll see. I yeah. I I think we're going to see. I mean, I I made all my predictions, but I I yeah. on the, I agree with you on some, and I part ways on others. Yeah. Well, the good news is is that we're probably not going to have the luxury of being entirely correct on any one point. So yeah, <laughs> you and I. So we're just going to have to adapt and evolve. And plus, we're going to start getting Throne of Eldraine spoilers here. In, gosh, probably a week, two weeks from now is probably when the spoiler season yeah, starts. It's exciting. And so that's going to throw everything for a cocked hat, too. I want to say one other thing, because I didn't say this, but you know, there's really a spectrum of opinion, and it's hard to know where like most people really fall. So I like to I like to think of it as a continuum, and the polls I like to put are Nat Mose and Brian Kelly, because they kind of represent at the extremes, you know, the, the extreme views. <laughs> like Nat Mose wants just, is I think, the more extreme libertarian when it comes to managing the ban and restricted lists. And he tweeted he'd like to see like 11 cards unrestricted. And Brian Kelly is like the <laughs> polar opposite. He, I think, is the most on that spectrum like proactive he not only wants a ton of cards to be restricted consistently over time but he also wants cards to be banned and most people fall <laughs> somewhere in between like rich Shea wants nine cards restricted i wanted two cards restricted it's hard to know where really the balance of opinion is and that's part of the problem is that even if there's a lot of people who wanted something to happen that doesn't mean they wanted 10 things to happen or six things to happen maybe yeah. they wanted two things to happen you know so it's Asking for community opinion is always just really dangerous because it's not clear. There can be a huge consensus that something should happen, but there might be a dissensus about what that thing should be. Or maybe there's mm. consensus around one thing, but total disagreement around the rest. So I, I always... And all the Facebook polling that everyone kept trying to do repeatedly reinforced. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's, I don't know how many of our listeners are active in the Facebook vintage community, but I know that some of you have to be, many of you have to be. But the simple truth is, is that people who were trying to sort out opinions, their theirs and others on this issue for the last several months, continue to post these uh, increasingly diverse and potentially ludicrous polls on Facebook with all these options, and they always get a ton of responses. And there's all these this convolution of results with no specific plan, right? It's just to your point, a lot of people wanted something to change, and there were so many possible futures that there was. Not even close to a consensus. <laughs> right. It- and that's where Ian Duke finds himself right now, and I don't envy him that, because he's he's introducing this community feedback as an increasingly important part yeah. of the the philosophy and the the 
motivation even for taking action yeah here, but which is unprecedented but in ask, itself but it's just it's just not a winning no. proposition and it's like it, it depends what you ask like if you ask the team academy players like Riche and matthew murray you get a very different answer than if you ask like the team serious people right and one way of mm-hmm. one way of framing that is oh well that's paper versus online blah 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 and i just don't think it's that simple i mean the team serious people got into the finals of the vintage championship regularly you know um, yep. so I think the challenge is that you really just have a diversity of opinion. You have different, you have different kind of, I don't want to put it poles, but you have different, um, nodes within that spectrum, mm-hmm. right? And, yep. and there's often, like, it's just not, it's hard to bridge those nodes. I mean, to some extent, it looks yeah. like what Ian Duke did was he, like, split the difference between Rich wanted nine, I wanted two, we got four. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of like right in between, right? Um, I do, I do like the fact that Ian, and you know, it's funny, he didn't explicitly state this in any way, I don't think. I like the fact that he is, there's an implicit, implicit acknowledgement here that any one change, any one card of all possible cards was probably going to push the dominoes too far in one direction. If you had just restricted Karn and not anything else, then you just weaken that deck and Bug gets to just kind of continue to run its, its run away with the format. Yeah. Or if you just restrict mental misstep, yes. then the then the workshop it's, decks all just blow everyone it's out. It's clear it's so, clear that they wanted to hit multiple things. What Randy Bueller what Randy Bueller said on Twitter There's an implicit reason for that though, which is not stated in the, the message here. Which at all. is they wanted to create promote what, balance. I think yeah. so. Because Randy Bueller Because I think they acknowledged that the fact that if they had done any one thing it would have just it would just kick the leg out of a three legged stool. Well, I disagree. I think the one thing you could have done is restrict misstep and it would have affected everything. <laughs> but that said, R- Randy but, uh, Bueller. Don't you think that would have made the car index just that much more dominant? I mean, I, they weren't dominant as we just saw. They were, what were they in August? Well, they were, let's see, they were, uh, in August, the shop decks, which were all Karn Forge decks, one I think didn't have Forge and was Karn or vice versa. I can't remember, was 16% of the top eights. Mm-hmm. So it's. No, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. I I don't think I share your opinion there, but we don't have time to get into it exactly. I feel like just restricting misstep would have pushed workshop decks over the top. Well, that's why I wanted Mystic Forge restricted, and and maybe they needed well, to restrict. That, but that's yeah. That's my point though, is that Mystic Forge wasn't do- hasn't been dominating no. for the last month. No, but my right? my grounds for that were counterplay. Um, yeah, I I do uh, think th- so. Randy Bueller tweeted that he want he sent them an email saying here are ten things you should restrict six of them two from each deck. <laughs> he said, and he tweeted, he said, if you don't restrict, actually, he prefaced it by saying, I think you should restrict Workshop and Bazaar, but if you're not going to do that, here are 10 things to look at and restrict six of these, and this is basically what you should do. Yeah. I think this was fairly well tailored. I, I think uh, the, the one thing that makes me the most nervous is the Grave Troll restriction. I can live with Karn. Uh, I would have preferred to let, let the Tezzeret exist a little bit longer by itself and see how that works. But, I mean, there are serious, I mean, it's close to on par with Mystic Forge. Um, I can live with that. Um, the the Grave Troll one is the one that scares me the most. I also, frankly, the one of the reasons I like Karn is because I think if you had just restricted, let's say they restricted Grim Monolith and Mystic Forge, then mm. I think you incentivize shot players to go back. Some players will go back to the aggro deck. Some players will continue to play the Karn deck. And ideally, yeah, I would Opal. like to see a split among the workshop players, half playing aggro, half playing the Karn deck, right? That's the ideal, but maybe that's unrealistic. I think that's too delicate, too delicate of a line to to walk. Fair. I think it, if the if the aggro decks can beat the Karn decks, then the aggro decks should just push them out, and vice versa. Don't forget that when Karn was new, well, this is pre Forge, but when Karn was new, you mentioned it earlier. There was this, there was some diversity of Karn decks 
for a while until everyone realized they could just make the Karn decks beat all the Ravager decks. <laughs> and then there was no reason to play the Ravager decks. The same with the Eldrazi, right? There are all these Karn Eldrazi decks for, for the first couple of weeks. We were talking about in, in our show two episodes ago, three episodes ago, about were, how we had this diversity of Karn decks. There were some pretty serious consolidation occurring. Yeah, yeah. and that all disappeared. Um, I think that one of the things I don't like about this is just the amount, right? I would love to have seen Fastbond come off at some point that wasn't today. <laughs> Either the prior announcement, which I think would have been a great time for Fastbond to have come off, right? Or the next one, right before Champs is arguable, but not this one. I don't agree that Grave Troll needed to go. I, I would have been just fine with the first three cards on this list, and that's it. Hmm. I think it's a safer... But we, we, You and I haven't really talked about it, but there's a another safety issue. This is completely irrespective of, of an individual card's place in the metagame. But there's a safety issue from a format management standpoint of not making this much change at once. We've said it in the past. We just haven't explicitly stated it today. This is our inherently risky move. And for an environment we're in that has so much uncertainty, like we're, we're using unprecedented philosophical you know, grounds for making some of this change, I just think it, it is doubly risky to also make a big change the first time you're trying to undertake something like this. Yeah, I I actually disagree on that. I mean, I do agree there's risks, but I think that the that the best time to unrestrict a card is when you're making restrict restrictions not from a technical like let's evaluate the metagame perspective, but from a um that's when you're going to get the least resistance, community resistance to potential unrestrictions. So from a policymaker prudential perspective, I think that's when the people will t- will be able to e- most easily swallow that pill. Don't you think it would have been better to unrestrict Fastbond two months ago, well, three months? That's what I'm saying. From a pure technocratic perspective, I agree with you. But I also think that it's easier to justify unrestricting something to the larger community when you're taking something away. Right. It makes that pillow okay. easier, pill well, easier to swallow. Yeah, that doesn't work on me, but <laughs> I guess I see your point. I, I just see change. I, I mean, I... It's like it's like looking at the matrix. I don't even see the code. I just see change. I just see five cards moving and the systemic impacts of which are impossible to predict. Fair enough. And when you're having trouble managing the format to begin with, I, I don't enjoy the notion of introducing extra chain as a way to fight that. Fair enough. <laughs> it's not an antidote to to expertise. <laughs> well, I know that this is going to be a, a many talked about uh, change. It's going to go down in history as another one that is either much loved or derided or both yeah this was this was a momentous day in the history of the format it really was yeah i am worried about the next announcement when there's still something wrong like there's still narset i'm worried about what approach that ian or others will take to the next announcement because some of these themes are going to get pretty thin if you try to just continue to extrapolate until uh, in a significant uh, portion of the community stops complaining Yeah, it's. I mean, so the way that I think, from a historical perspective, there's two two th- two kind of things I want to say about this. One is there's this debate over how good or bad this format has been in the last couple of months, and mm-hmm. I don't think it's been great, but I don't think it's historic low. Uh, Riche and Randy Bueller both said that they thought it was, and Mike Solomos said that it was the worst format ever, or if <laughs> like literally they said the worst format ever. I had some t- Twitter conversation today. I just I can't wrap my head around that. I can't think. I can't believe it's worse than Trinisphere at its peak, or Flash at its peak, or the Academy deck at its peak, or the Tricks deck at its peak. Those are clearly worse formats by both subjective and objective measures. I mean, if you're measuring counterplay, like those formats had more turn one or two kills. 
If you're measuring diversity, those formats were clearly less diverse. <laughs> if you're measuring uh, Jeannie Simpson scores, the the um, summer of 2017 was had a worse Jeannie Simpson score by far, the, with the shops mm-hmm. and mentor dominating. So I just I just don't know how you can you know say that this format's been worse. In fact, Bugs dominance I think is you know like that's the top of the format like Bug. That's not the menace that like the Academy deck was in January 1999, or the Trickstes deck was in the summer of 2000, when it was like Tricks like was the old, literally Necropotence Illusions done. It was the only deck you could play. It was all mirror matches. Everything else was like just clobbered by it. Um, so I, I just find I don't think anyone's actually saying that Bug is the thing that. No, no, I understand. They're saying that upsetting. the quality of the format <laughs> is just terrible. But it seems so hyperbolic to me to say this is the worst format ever. To me, what this is to me what this restriction symbolizes two things. Number one, it symbolizes that there has been a lot of unhappiness over the last couple of years. And that unhappiness has led to an eruption. And a lot of that unhappiness was happiness was centered on paradoxical outcome. And I think something had to give. Right. And this is like the you know, the safety valve that relieves some of the pressure in the in the fault line. Um in the fault. The second is that I think we've seen a lot of change because of new inter- new cards coming to the format in the last couple of months, and that has exacerbated the underlying anxiety about the format, right? Because we're in this like tumultuous period, and I think restrictions are needed not just from a like metagame correcting perspective, but from like anxiety reducing perspective. And so I think the restrictions. <laughs> Or like the culmination of buildup of a lot of things over the last years, not just what's happened in the current metagame. And I also yeah. think that, um, you know, it's going to relieve some tension about, you know, the metagame warping effects of these, these, uh, these changes. And I think we look back, I think that, you know, if we were looking back clear eyed with the data and even with our terminal experiences, I don't think it's really that much worse than it was two years ago. So, you know, I, I think it's pretty much of a line. The difference is that Dredge got a huge boost and Bug surged as a result. And in the shop iteration that came into a being was like this really nasty, more combo deck, but it really wasn't a world beater. It was nothing compared to like when shops were what five of the top eight decks a couple of years ago. That was abysmal. Yeah. It's funny. While you were talking about that, I was thinking about the different ways in which people have expressed their dislike for the format. And one of the common threads that came up, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now on Twitter was about the duration of matches in Magic Online challenges. Yes, Matt, that was Matt and, Murray's points. <laughs> yeah, Matt Murray posted some some stats from the top eight, I think, that day, and has since supported them with a few other examples. But Ian's explanation of things here does allude to a turn one or turn two effective wins. And it makes me wonder if the notion of the duration of matches on Magic Online is one of their uh, factors, one of their dimensions that they measure. Because that seems like the sort of thing that they could easily measure if they're bothering to track it. They might not be. You know, I just, I feel like a lot of players, and Matt is not an exception from this, pull data that makes, that that fits their case rather than consistently tracking Mm -hmm. it. Like, you know, when when Matt didn't like Gush, he's like, oh, look how good Gush is doing. When he doesn't like something else, he pulls out a different metric. Let's look at, you know, the clock time. I, I don't think... That my guess is that clock time has not has a statistically significant average change from this past period to previous vintage formats, especially those, you know, that I could pinpoint a couple within the last couple of years. Um, mm. either clock overall chronological clock time or turn, uh, turn, uh, cumulative t- total turns. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I just don't, I don't, 
we don't have the data to to actually make that comparison. And if we did, I would be I would be surprised if there was actually a, a measurably statistically significant difference from recent you know recent finish challenge top eights to uh, you know any other random time you pick that MTGO has been on vintage. Well, I don't. I'm simply unaware of enough anecdotal or uh, actual evidence to opine either way. I felt like there was something to the fact that the format was virtually ending games a little sooner thanks to the the Karn Forge deck. Yeah. But to your point, Dredge hasn't been a race deck for a while now. It's been actively, I think, slowing down in a lot of different builds. Bug is not the kind of deck that could end a game soon at all. And there's been a, a great diminishment overall in paradoxical outcome. So using what anecdotes I can in my knowledge of the format, I think your assessment is reasonable that it seems to me that maybe in an environment or maybe in a, in a particular event that is strongly dominated by shops that that the, the games might end faster on average but when bug is five out of the top yeah, eight it's I, not, it seems mathematically impossible for that event to have bad short clock times and fewer that's exactly turns what yeah. I'm saying. but maybe maybe all the data is hidden in the swiss maybe it's just the fact that bug got to win more games on average than we can see but all the other games were you know three turn affairs i don't know and maybe it's it's also that um Decks are more. I don't know. People are scooping earlier. <laughs> are people getting a, you know, a turn one Mystic Forge draw and then scooping when their opponent plays Oof on turn two or something? I I don't. I really don't know. I'm 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 out of my depth here. The point is, it's something at face that you value, were wondering about, especially of late. Yeah. yeah. I I wonder if Ian and the team there have that stat and and maybe they looked at it and didn't want to use it because it didn't really tell the story, or maybe they don't have it. I don't know. I'd like to know. I'd, if I was to ask Ian uh, a short list of questions, that would be on my list. Did you look at this? Was there anything to it? Well, how do you want to close on this one, Steve? Just that this is this is a historical day. It's a monumental day. It's one of the biggest sets of restrictions in the history of the format. Um, I think it should relieve a lot of pressure in the community. I think people are going to be pretty happy overall with these changes. The potential it has to create a, a great format is is there. Um, but we also have the potential to, to sl- slide into a format that's just not great either. Not necessarily, it's not going to be worse than what we've had recently, but it could be in more ways than we might imagine a continuation of what's been. And I, I worry that players are just, you know, perpetually whining and complaining about, about the format instead of really enjoying its features. To some extent, we may just have a, a vintage format that you just, you know, with 20, six, seven, eight years of cumulative printings, there's only so much you can do to fix certain things, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. now we have a vintage restricted list that's 49 cards, which is, you know, below the peak of 54 from, t- you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just think that there is going to be an inherent level of non-interactivity in the format that some players just find unacceptable. And it's just, it's going to be there. Whether it's Dark Ritual Combo Decks, PO, I just don't think you can wipe that out. And I think the attempts to wipe it out are going to do, you know, if you go too far down that run, you're going to do more damage than not. So, yeah, I feel like you use the road analogy just now. I feel like in a different way, this is the beginning of a journey. I feel like this does not solve this format. Some of the the salient features that a lot of people were upset about were not only tied to the Mystic Forge Karn decks, right? There's a lot of hate for Narset still. I know that you believe that restriction of misstep makes Narset easier to, to combat. I don't think that the people who dislike Narset will be swayed by that. Um, 
Do you think that people are going to have the knives out for Narset now? Is that what your opinion? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, for for all the people who were who were calling for seven to ten changes, Narset was on the list already, and very highly so. So I'm just concerned that that there's this this is just uh, you know a step along a road, and we might need one or more announcements still to get us to a point where where people don't complain as much to Ian and others. So I'm I'm not going to be surprised. Yeah, I'm not going to be surprised if Narset and maybe other cards get the axe before champ and we'll just have to watch it closely and see yeah they've been introducing cards at a rapid uh, rate in this into the format this year driven by war and modern horizons my instincts are that's going to slow down it's i don't think that's going to be the standard going forward modern horizons was, was unprecedented of course and war was just uh unique in special ways that's what gave us you know karn and narset as one-sided planeswalkers are not going to be a standard going forward i just don't think that uh, new printings are going to be quite as disruptive so the format's going to have about six weeks to work itself out, and then Ian and his peers are going to look back into the data and listen to what people have said and make some what are probably ultimately going to be pretty quick decisions, comparatively speaking. Yeah, I, and that could lead to another wave. We could have another two to three cards yeah. go. I think as 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 a potential future. Yeah, that's in October. That's really the danger, right? Is that this triggers a continual cycling of restrictions that don't really ever create stability or diversity that just lead to a really i mean there's so many potential roads from here it's hard to know but that's one of the that's one of the possible endpoints of this choose your own adventure story and we just don't don't know where they'll end i don't think that's a particularly likely one but it is a possible one you know and there's another thing that we gosh there's so many philosophical and policy discussions here and we don't need to dig into this there's inherent risk with certain cards going onto the list because it's hard to take them back off Yes, yes. And some cards are more likely than others to to ever come back off the list again, right? Yeah. For, for a variety of reasons. Mental Misstep is the sort of card that no one's ever going to want to take off the list no. again. it's gone forever. Um, It's gone forever, yeah. And I think that Karn and Mystic Forge are probably in that boat too. And the thing is, the only way that Karn or Mystic Forge would come off the list again is if the format had fundamentally well, changed to the point where a, a four-mana card wasn't viable. Well, <laughs> and that's not or, a good future. Or there's just like a, a much, much more ubiquitous set of answers to Planeswalkers and or colorless cards than there currently are. Well, you're right. That's the one possible future as well. Golgari Grave Troll is the sort of card that... What would what would be the set of circumstances that would have them unrestrict that? Yeah. How, how bad would Dredge have to get... Before someone said we can give them a grave totally back, unplayable, right? and that's not good, right? No. If and this is, I'm, 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 I've already veered strongly into philosophical elements of format management here that I, I don't have a, a prepared speech for. But there's something there's just additional risk with this much change that certain cards can't can't ever come off the list, and I don't like that. I I don't like combining the fact that we're taking a heavy hand with the format with overlapping you know there's a venn diagram that has a lot of overlapping space here across archetypes with individual cards like misstep and combine that with the fact that you're making a change that's almost certain to never be undone all those things together is 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 a little too much for me it's it speaks to um you're undermining certain principles of what it's like to manage a restricted list keeping it small is one of them but also minimizing systemic change is another and I think this uh, this particular change flies in the face of that strongly. Agreed. <sighs> I don't want to seem, you know, you seem down entirely about negative yeah. about this. I, I'm I'm down just because of you've heard my assessment of the last several uh, restriction changes, right? 
Yeah. I, I restated it in this in this episode here, but I said it at the time, like, this is a continuation of uh, what I consider to be incorrect choices in terms of format man. The Chalice Lodestone uh, Dyad, the Mentor Gush Probe comparison. Probe is another one of those cards. Like, that's never coming off the list. Well, it didn't need to go on the list, but people hate it so much that it's never going to come off. No one's ever going to put it and say, hey, Probe's probably safe to unrestrict. That's not going to be a problem. That, that conversation's just never going to be bad. <laughs> it's <laughs> a weird conversation, but I wouldn't... I, I, I think it's... Probe is more likely to come off the list than misstep. Put it that way. Uh, okay, that's... Yeah, arguable. I, I don't actually have a strong thought on that particular comparison, but... Um, Anyway, uh, I'm not entirely down on the whole thing. I'm glad that they're taking an active uh, approach in the format here. I'm glad they're not just letting it uh, wither and die on the vine. So that is one huge upside here. If the community as a whole perceives this action to be positive on average, and more people play vintage, the, the queues fill up more from a league standpoint, and the challenges maybe have more players, then that, that's, a, that's a benefit to the format that is undeniable. And as such, I really hope that we see that <laughs> because... Many of the other benefits are are much harder to measure and much harder to appreciate. Yeah, so that's where I'm at. Well, here we go. This is the world we live in, regardless of whether we're happy with it or not. This is the world we currently <laughs> right. have it. So, when next you hear from us, it will probably be our Throne of Eldraine set review, and a fast on its heels will be a Eternal Weekend North America preview show, which will double as a Band of Restricted List announcement update, probably, probably. And so we'll probably have those two shows before Champs, and those will contribute directly to what you can expect going into Champs this year. All right. Anything else, Steve? That's it. Thank you so much for listening and bearing with us through hopefully what you enjoyed the, uh, the talk, the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to episode 93 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find our show. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.